You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners out there. Welcome to episode 161 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today, we are talking about sleep. I love sleep. Ah, yeah, I am getting better with my relationship Uh, with sleep. I could be doing it right now. Yeah, no, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. (laughs) Sleep is our topic today, and what a surprisingly bizarre topic it is. Sleep is very strange. Yes. And this may not seem intuitive since sleep seems like a fairly mundane thing. We do it. We do it our whole lives. We do it basically every night for, you know, those of us with a healthy sleep schedule. Sure. And animals do it in general. Seems like it should be a fairly non-issue topic of discussion. And yet... Two hours later. So many issues. (laughs) There is so much we do not understand and are still trying to fully understand decipher about sleep and the questions of why do animals sleep what actual benefits come from sleep and why is there so much variety in how organisms sleep what's the deal with the evolutionary patterns in sleep yes it is this is like entire fields of profession that are still trying to figure out just single aspects of these questions. So this episode will be an introduction to the concept of sleep. Yes. So we will go through and discuss what, how we define sleep. You know, what, what does it actually mean to be asleep versus just unconscious? <laughs> and what do we see in the different ways organisms sleep? And then what are some of our investigations and answers into why we sleep and why we might have started to sleep as organisms? We will be discussing this because it was requested, like all our topics. This episode was requested by Dog the Cynic, Jonathan, Firefly Blue, Dan J, Taterboy, Reiko, and Krista. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank you. This was a very engaging topic to research. (laughs) This This one I learned a ton. Now, before we get into that discussion, we have some announcements, and then we will move to news. Our announcements, we just have a few. First and foremost, we do have a Patreon. As always. And our Patreon supports the podcast top to bottom, and those who sign up as our patrons and support us this way get extra goodies like extra audio content, extra behind-the-scenes info, and access to us. Yeah, we do live streams every month. Mm-hmm. And at certain levels, they get their names shouted out in gratitude. So this episode, we would like to welcome and thank Mary, Felix, Paul, and Arthur. Welcome and thanks to all of our patrons. Absolutely. If you would like to support us this way, you can find links down in the description, along with links for our social medias and how to contact us, and the Audible affiliate link that you can use to get a free month and support us, etc., etc. We will appreciate any one or more of those links that you click. Yes. Speaking of extra content, we are coming up on the summer. And this summer, we have plans, like we did last year, for Croc and Snake Month. That is true. We did our inaugural Croc Month and Snake Month last year, June and July, and we had so much fun, we're going to do it again. Yeah. Unsurprisingly. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have already begun to make plans. Uh, This year's Croc and Snake Month are going to look 
very much like last year's Croc and Snake Month. A lot of the similar beats with a few little shifts here and there. We will have more details as the months get closer, but for now we will just say if you are a patron, stay tuned because we will have some early posts with info going out to patrons in the near future. Yeah, so look forward to that. We are both very excited to be returning to these months. And speaking of upcoming events, the first weekend in April, we're going to be at ETS UConn. Mm-hmm. Here in Johnson City, Tennessee, our local university does a convention, their own version of a Comic-Con. We will be giving three different panels over that weekend of April 1st and 2nd. We're going to be talking about speculative evolution. We're going to be talking about Pokemon Extinction. And we are going to be explaining why Jurassic Park is a terrible zoo. (laughs) So any of you listeners who happen to be in this area, come check it out and say hi. It was a lot of fun last time, and we're getting to do more stuff this time. So it should be tons of fun. Here's hoping. And with that, we can wrap up our announcements and move on to our news section. Every episode, we like to gather up some recent scientific news articles from evolutionary science, paleontology, fossil, earth history, and share them all with you so that we can all stay up to date on what's happening in science and in science today, or recently. Very recently. What has been happening, David? My first bit of news for this episode is about monotremes. Ooh, neat. Uh, We don't get to talk about monotremes very often on the podcast. Monotremes are the today very rare, very mysterious group of mammals that still lay eggs And have a whole bunch of other weird stuff. They exclusively include platypuses and echidnas. Mm -hmm. This research is about an exceptional fossil monotreme uh, that is, in fact, the oldest known monotreme from South America. Ooh, this is exciting, both because that's awesome, and that's going to make this a surprisingly monotreme-heavy episode. Interesting. (laughs) I didn't expect that. This is research published by Nicolas Cimento et al. in Communications Biology, And we will be linking to an article uh, in our blog post in Live Science by Joanna Thompson. You can find the link to the article in the blog post, and you can find a link to the blog post in the episode description. Monotremes today, as I said, platypuses and echidnas, a total of five living species, endemic, so only living in Australia and nearby islands. Here's a fun fact. The fossil record of monotremes, according to these researchers, is also exclusively from Australasia, so Australia and the nearby uh, region, except for one known fossil from the early Cenozoic of Patagonia in South America. Huh. I don't know that I knew about that one exception. This has led to the reasonable suggestion that monotremes basically spent their entire evolutionary history in the Australia region of the world and dispersed once over to South America, most likely at a time where Australia, Antarctica, and South America were still connected as Gondwana was breaking up, made their way over to South America. But of course, the fossil record is limited. This research expands the fossil record by one tiny piece. In (laughs) fact, one tooth. These authors report on a new monotreme from South America. The fossil itself comes from the Chorillo Formation. That's probably pronounced Chorillo. Maybe even Chorillo, but I don't know. I don't speak any South American languages. (laughs) This formation is in southern Argentina, dates to the late Cretaceous around 70 million years ago. It is a, a formation that also includes mollusks, frogs, turtles, snakes, dinosaurs, a whole bunch of different things. This fossil itself is a small piece of a lower jaw 
with a single tooth in it. And as is often the case with mammals, a single tooth was enough for these researchers to identify a new genus and species. Even among a group whose today's members are completely toothless. <laughs> yep, and indeed they do make a note of that. Uh, they were You cannot compare tooth morphology to modern platypuses and echidnas. They do not have teeth. But fossil monotremes do, and baby monotremes do. Yeah, which is super weird. And then they lose them. Yep. So they were able to identify it as monotreme. <laughs> that means if we talk to a monotreme, we'd be like, well, we have baby teeth. They're like, yeah. And it's like, yeah, and then we get too. our adult teeth and they go, whoa. Hang on. Weird. What a weird <laughs> group of mammals. <laughs> Not even laying eggs. <laughs> this new genus and species is Patagorhynchus pasquali. It is the oldest known monotreme in South America. The other one being early Cenozoic, so I don't know the exact date on that one, but probably about 10 million years later. Cool. This is interesting because it suggests that monotremes were more widespread than we thought by the end of the Mesozoic. If I remember correctly, they said that the earliest monotremes in the Australia area are early Cretaceous. By the end of the Mesozoic, it seems like they were probably distributed across Australia, Antarctica, and South America before the end of the Cretaceous. We don't have any monotreme fossils from Antarctica, but that's not surprising because Antarctica is covered with an impenetrable shield of ice. We mostly don't have fossils from Antarctica. Episode 11. <laughs> so this is a little tiny piece of an update to our understanding of when and where monotremes spread around. Also, a couple of fun little notes. One, they pointed out that there are no monotremes from central and northern Patagonia, farther north than this, even in places of the same age that are well sampled. Huh. Which might mean that there was a difference in the ecosystems across this region, which has been noted in dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might be that monotremes were only in the southern regions at that time. Hmm. And they also point out that a handful of features of other early monotremes are similar to modern platypuses in ways that have made researchers suggest that the platypus-like bill might go back quite a ways. Yes. And in this study, they make a, a sh quick note that the shape of this tooth also would seem to fit that kind of jaw shape. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it is possible that, or at the very least, this fossil does not contradict the suggestion that there were platypus-faced monotremes all the way back to the Cretaceous. Which is why, if you click on the article, uh, they have a picture of what Patagorhynchus might have looked like, and it's basically a platypus. Yep. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> so they may have been using that electrosensitive bill 70 million years ago, potentially. Yeah, well, which then also wonders the question of, like, were you also beaver-shaped in the back half of your, like, right. the back and, of your body? And they did point out that this is found in an aquatic setting. That makes sense. Uh, which I, th I think they said is also true of a bunch of other... Uh, early monotremes so maybe yeah what yeah for the animal that confused early explorers so well today it is awesome that you've been around for a very long time yeah if that's <laughs> true that there were things that looked like platypuses in the cretaceous i, I guess we're the weird ones yep yep so why <laughs> what are we doing wrong so we don't have more of these right where's your duck bill <laughs> that is very cool and it, it, it's also the fact that it's not found in other areas that it seems like it would be if they were doing well, you know, across Patagonia. It makes me wonder, were you just really good at a particular environment? Right. Were you always restricted in your distribution yeah. around the world? Oh, cool. 
Well, speaking of groups with odd head features. Sure. My next bit of news is about Dunkleosteus. That's a fish. The famous armor-headed predatory fish of the Devonian, which is often hailed as Earth's first super predator. Right. A great white shark size and perhaps roughly shaped predator of the Devonian seas. Precisely. This research says, no, not sized or shaped like a great white. Probably much shorter. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. This research is by Russell Engelman in Diversity, and the article is a press release by Case Western Reserve University in SciTech Daily. So, Dunkleosteus is one of the most famous fossil organisms. Like, it's super, super iconic because its face armor has been preserved very well numerous times and just lets us know what its face looked like. And it looked awesome. It looks so cool. It looks like it was designed for a game like Ark. Like, yes. <laughs> it looks like it was made for video games. Got that awesome row of blade-like tooth armor for shearing bites. Truly incredible. This is part of a group called Placoderms. Episode 29, in fact. Yes, and specifically this was an arthrodire Placoderm we run into an issue that we don't know how big Dunkleosteus actually was because placoderms generally, like many early fish, had cartilage skeletons. That armor on the face preserves really, really well, but the rest of the body typically not so much. Most arthrodires, we have the face and front body armor because it continues down to the front part of the trunk, Mm -hmm. but not past the midsection. So we have that for many of them, but we're lacking the back. So size estimates have gone off of its general size and features of other aquatic predators and have ranged wildly from 5 to 10 meters. You'll often see suggestions that this was a great white size. Right. I often hear 20. Yes. As sort of the big number associated. 20 feet or 6 to 7 meters. Exactly. 15 to 20 foot. But here it is pointed out that Dunkleosteus has been fairly well studied, but a lot of research was done pre-1930s like Mm. there hasn't actually been a lot of research since then when you take it all into consideration interesting and none of those size estimates were based off of statistical analysis or direct hard evidence they were estimates based off of concept but not actually any measurements that we were taking all right and so it was proposed here that we've kind of missed that that isn't actually a solid number because we assumed Dunkleosteus, such a famous fossil, was well studied. Sure. Turns out this aspect is fairly understudied. So that's what they attempted. They used a measurement that has been found to be pretty well correlated with overall body size for fish, which is the orbit opercular length, which is from the back of the skull, back of the head. Where the gill cover is. Mm -hmm. To the front of the orbit, the front of the eye. So it's basically the head length minus the snout. Right. This has been found to be a pretty consistent measurement for fish length. Okay. They used that measurement for Dunkleosteus and compared it with a data set of arthrodires that have complete body lengths, those rare ones we have, and extant fish. Modern day species. Total of 972 species with 3,169 observations. So a decent statistical sample. Yeah, this is a data set. (laughs) They found that it does strongly correlate. So that correlation held up during this analysis and seemed to be able to accurately predict the arthrodire specimens we did have body lengths for. Gotcha. So it 
matched them. This method works. It works across our modern fish and this extinct group of fish. Applying this method to Dunkleosius results in much shorter lengths. Interesting. 3.4 meters for a typical adult. So 10 feet or so? 10 feet. Okay. With the largest specimens getting up to 4.1 roughly meters. Okay. So now like 13, 14 feet. Yes. So like 11 to 13 feet seems to be the upper size range for Dunkleosius, which is even smaller than what we were saying. Like that's yes. not even at the lower end of what we were saying. That's under that 15 to 20 feet. Yes. So this is much shorter than we had typically been projecting and picturing this predator. And they noted that this is probably partially because when we estimated, we were assuming a shark-like body shape because big fish predators, typically we think of sharks. Right. So we, we are biased toward that body shape. But also that we weren't taking in consideration the typical body plan of other arthrodires. Right. That's not necessarily the shape this group of fish is. Yes. They are often much shorter and deeper bodied. That they have a wider and shorter body, which is very different from the typical shark and elasmobranch body plan. Mm -hmm. This would have meant that Dunkleosius was probably also shorter and chunkier. They said that it probably still weighed a decent amount, that an 11-foot Dunkleosius would have likely weighed close to a 15-foot gray white. So it's not just shorter, but it is condensed. Right. Uh, They had a couple of great descriptions. They said that this would kind of make it like a wrecking ball of a fish, just like (laughs) this dense, short, chunky predator of a fish. The name Chunky Dunk has been going around. I have seen that. (laughs) Yep. I also saw Chunklosteus. Oh, fantastic. And they noted that when you look at them, it seems weird until you realize it's actually fairly tuna shaped. Sure, sure. Yep. It bulges out a lot in the middle Mm -hmm. and then comes down to a face and a tail so that it's not actually that weird a shape for a fish. We just weren't taking that in consideration. Right. It's just a weird shape for a gray white shark. Yes. Which is our basis of compare or an orca, you know, that's our main basis of comparison. That very long torpedo shape. They said that it's more shaped like a tuna, but with a mouth twice as wide as a large great white shark. Yes. (laughs) I love the idea that even though it perhaps is smaller, shorter than we perceived, that kind of just makes it weirder. Yes. It's just an odd shape for a predator that size in the ocean, given what we typically think of as... Because the ocean hadn't settled Mm -hmm. on the normal shape for a large predator in the ocean. They were still trying out different stuff. Absolutely. And they make that point that is this is a weird fish, obviously, because it's got face armor, but we weren't seeing truly how weird it is. Yes. And they did note that this means that probably since the other big thing about Dunkleosius is one of the first large predators and one of the first large, large animals to mm-hmm. get up to those sizes, that this probably means vertebrates did not reach five meters or greater until the Carboniferous. So later than we... Oh, yeah. This shifts our perception of at least length, you know, mass. Sure. It's hard, but at least length it shifts. But that Dunkleosius was probably still the biggest animal that had existed on Earth up till that point. Right. A 12-foot predatory fish yeah. with a giant armor tooth mouth. And a big pot belly. Is, that's still nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, so this is definitely not making Dunkleosius small. Right. It just... Just a little... Just smaller. For our biased perception, it might seem a little less impressive. Yes. But it's 
I wouldn't want to swim with it. Uh, you will still, you will probably not want to downsize your boat. Yes, exactly. Right? You might not need to upgrade, <laughs> but you will probably stick with the size you have. <laughs> the thing that I like about this is assuming this sticks, because mm-hmm. there's always the chance someone will come along and go, actually, there's a flaw here and yeah. let's reevaluate. Oh, here's the reason that measurement isn't, this actual other measurement sure. is better. But this sounds like it is statistically well supported. And if that sticks, this means that there are just so many Dunkelosteus models and artworks around the country that are now a little bit too long. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and like, <laughs> That's a very famous animal to depict in museums and stuff. I've wanted that, that uh, I think it's Safari Dunkelosteus toy. That's mm. a really cool pose and everything. Uh, I, now I want to I want to get that one, and I want a new one that's all chunky. Yes. <laughs> so any toy makers out there, uh, start making chunkalosteus. Yeah. Oh, uh, make those those round bodied stuffed animals, but they yes. just put a fish tail and a dunkalosteus head on it. Make us a dunkel a dunkalosteus bobblehead. Yeah. <laughs> well, my next bit of news has basically nothing to do. Uh, in common with that, <laughs> uh, except that it's also the Paleozoic. Okay. That's what I got. All right. Uh, insects. Nice. Specifically, insects and pollen, uh, a relationship that goes back quite a long ways, perhaps longer than we previously realized. Neat. This is research by Alexander Kramov et al. in the journal Biology Letters, and we will link in the blog post to an article in The Guardian by Ian Sample. So you may know that insects pollinate plants sometimes. I have known that to be attributed to them. This is a thing that a ton of insects will do. They will visit different plants. They'll pick up a bunch of pollen at one flower. And then when they visit another flower, they drop off a bunch of pollen. And it helps the pollen get from flower to flower, helping the plants to become pollinated and reproduce. Yes. A bunch of insects today are kind of specialized for doing this. It's not a thing that directly benefits the individual insect, but they're covered in hairs that will hold on to the pollen and then rub it off when it gets to the other plant as the insect goes feeding from plant to plant. Well, because this is one of those classic examples of mutualistic evolution that the plant wants the the insect to visit it to get pollinated. Mm -hmm. And if it has something the insect wants, like nectar or even pollen for it to eat it will be selected to provide that from the insect and the insects that best serve the plant will do most successful with that plant yes so a lot of insects will have specialized apparatus on their body a lot of plants are specialized to help insects to do this today this relationship between insects and plants is mostly seen in angiosperms flowering plants and there is plenty of evidence in the fossil record that insects and flowering plants have probably been doing this together for about as long as there have been flowering plants. Yeah. All the way back to the Cretaceous. But insects have been around a lot longer than that. Just a bit. And there is some evidence to suggest that this kind of relationship might have started before flowering plants. Uh, Incidentally, flowering plants, episode 57. Insect evolution, episode 99. (laughs) Now, fossil evidence for this is difficult. Uh, We can find anatomy, mouth parts, parts of the plants, and the insects themselves. But the best evidence to help us understand insect pollination is insects with pollen on them. Yeah. Which we mostly get from amber. So much of that comes from the Cenozoic and the Cretaceous. We do have older fossils that are compression fossils, the actual insects smooshed between the layers, all the way back to the middle Jurassic, 160 million years old or so. 
Those are the oldest known insects with pollen on their bodies. Which is pretty crazy. That's awesome. This research finds insects with pollen on their bodies from the early Permian, 280 million years old, almost twice as old as the previous record holders for this phenomenon. All right, I mean, like, overshot it a bit to just one up, but fine. Let's talk about these insects. These fossils come from a site near Chakarta in Russia. This site has tons of insect remains. The paper mentioned that there are 260 insect species known from this site. Wow. These particular fossils are numerous remains of a group of insects called Tiliardembians, which are relatives of stoneflies, and which the paper and the article both describe as having bodies kind of shaped like earwigs. Okay, yeah, yeah. So short legs, uh, they, they said fusiform bodies, so mm-hmm. sort of torpedo, you know, uh, streamlined bodies. A number of these fossil insects, these are again compression fossils, so they're organic remains sort of flattened between the layers of sediment. Like pressing a flower between pages of a book. Several of these have pollen on their heads, thorax, abdomen, and legs. All over the body. There have been previous Paleozoic insects with pollen and spores in their guts, but this is the first time a Paleozoic insect has been found with pollen on the outside of the body. Cool. Now... They make the point that it is very difficult to say if this means they were a specialized pollinator or if they just happened to get a bunch of pollen on their bodies. Yes. But because uh, there are tons of insects today that just visit plants and might pick up some pollen, there are tons of insects that eat pollen. Mm -hmm. However, they do point out a couple of interesting things. For one, of course, they have pollen all over the body. They are extensively covered in this pollen. (laughs) They are pollinated. Also, they examined the pollen itself and found that it came from a relatively narrow range of plants. Oh, So they weren't visiting a whole wide variety of plants, only specific plants. And comparing with the pollen found at the site not attached to insects, the pollen they had is some of the rarer plants. And... Comparing with pollen found in the guts of some of the other insects at this site, other insects have a wider range of pollen. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these insects seem to have been visiting a specific subset of the plants in this ecosystem. Yeah. So sticking to certain types of plants and getting covered in pollen for one reason or another would make them a good pollinator. Yes. Whether they did pollinate or not, whether they were specialized for that, is hard to say. So they point out that this could be an example of a very early specialized pollinator, or at the very least, a precursor Mm -hmm. to specialized pollinators. These are insects that seem to have the features we'd expect of a pollinator in terms of their behavior and their physical anatomy. Whether or not they were actually being important pollinators for those plants is harder to say, but they at least were in the right range realm of type of insect to be an early pollinator. Absolutely, and I I very much appreciate that they made that caveat because that relationship between pollen maker and pollinator, there's a spectrum of how specialized versus unspecialized because there's plenty of things that do pollinate, but that's not... They're, they're not the main pollinator for that plant. Right. You know, they, they happen to also contribute. Yes, they do a little bit. They're not nearly as specialized as the bumblebee or whatnot. Mm. But there's also examples of unwilling pollinators where like, sure, there are flowers today that specially 
trap or even puff pollen on anything that comes to visit them. And it's like, hey, you're a pollinator now if you do this to another one of my flowers. Yes. And it's very possible that these insects got pollinated, you know, pollinified, Mm -hmm. even if they're not specialized for it. And so they still might pollinate, but that's not what their evolutionary history has been leaning them toward. And what makes this particularly interesting is not only its age as a potential very early evidence of pollinator and plant relationship, Mm -hmm. but also all this pollen came from gymnosperms. Yeah. Way before there were any flowering plants. So this relationship might far predate our actual earliest evidence for it so far in the fossil record, which is pretty cool. Which raises so many questions, because like I, I'm sure there are gymnosperm pollinators today. I believe there are. But I don't know anything about them. Like I don't know which ones do that or which gymnosperms do that, because famously, most of them are wind pollinated. Mm-hmm. Episode 155, for more on them. So this raises the question of like, is this something that, you know, are there gymnosperms from this time that seem similar to the ones we see it with today? Or was this probably more common when gymnosperms were the dominant group of plants? You know, and, and if so, did that shift when angiosperms came at like, what was happening then that was the same or different from today where we just typically think of angiosperms and pollinators? Yeah. Awesome. Man, now I want to learn. Uh, let's do a pollinators episode. Allie. Yeah. Submit your request now for an episode about pollinators. Well, my next bit of news is also about insects. Oh. Uh, not a, a famous pollinator group, though I do think ants pollinate. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm, I'd be shocked if they didn't, because what don't ants do? Right. This ants is, record this podcast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually. No. This is, I am just a, a suit full of ants. That's true. Ants, please, uh, please send help. The ants uh, are making us make this podcast. They, <laughs> they won't let us leave until the podcast is made. Please send help. Please send help. I am joking. This is a joke. <laughs> that last part written by the ants. <laughs> this is actually modern research, but it has implications for ant evolution and particularly the evolution of parasitic ants. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. We did an ants episode, episode 149, and a parasites episode. Yeah. Episode 102. These are findings that might give information of how ants can shift from non-parasitic to parasitic lifestyles much quicker than we thought they would have. All right, cool. This is research by Warring Tribal et al. in Current Biology, and the article is by Elizabeth Panisi in Science. This research focuses on a group of ants called clonal raiders, which are ants specialized in raiding other ant colonies. Okay. This is super normal behavior for lots of species of ants. There's army ants that are specialized for hunting other ant colonies. Mm. There's ones that will raid and go take ants from other colonies. Right, go in there and grab ants and take them and, and then make them part of the other colony. Yeah, they, they grab the larvae and then raise them to now do their foraging and everything yes. and caretaking for them. Little little side linguistic note here. Those ants are commonly called slaver ants yes. or slave-making ants. That is questionable terminology so we'll call them kidnapper ants which is a more accurate uh phrase in the first place you can definitely see where the logic was absolutely (laughs) but they're stealing the babies and they're kidnapping that works let's go with that (laughs) yes 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 this group is they, they describe them as stocky one millimeter long ants they are originally from bangladesh 
uh, but they've now become invasive in parts of China and India and a number of small islands, so they are researched uh, a bit because of being an invasive species. They are unusual in the fact that they lack queens. Instead, the workers lay eggs that are more workers and are just clones of themselves. Okay. Clonal colonies. Clonal raiders. That's why they're called this. They then raid other ant colonies, usually closely related ant species, which is also, to my knowledge, similar cases for a lot of those other raiding ants. Okay. That they're, it's typically they're raiding their cousin species. So this is a literal attack of the clones. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then they will steal the young of those other ants to feed to their young. They are often studied because of this clonal attribute for evolution of eusocial species, you know, and eusociality. Episode 111. In one study, though, back in 2015, they noticed a single colony of these ants. I believe it was one of the invasive colonies. Some of the workers had developed wings. Hmm. Very similar to the wings seen in the early first few days of queen ants. Sure. So typically with other ants who have queens, when they give birth to new queens, those come out once they're mature with wings to then fly off and establish colonies elsewhere so as not to compete with the home one. These ants don't do that because they don't have queens. Right. But they were forming some queen-looking ants that had wings for a short period during their adult life, it sounded like, and then would lose them much like others. Their young would also develop wings because they are clones. Sure. So you had this weird feature that was from some genetic mutation since it was being passed on. It wasn't that they just developed differently. You know, something happened while they were a larva or an egg. Something in them was causing them to develop like a queen and they were passing that on. As the article put it, over the next seven years, they tested and observed this colony to try to figure out what was going on. Because they ran into an issue that they couldn't do the typical test to say, well, if this is a mutation, we'll breed it with a non-mutated. Right. And if it's passed on, then there we go. Right. These These reproduce clonally. These are clones. so (laughs) They're not mating. They had some trouble (laughs) nailing down what was happening. What they found was a number of things during their observations. One, these individuals laid more eggs than their nestmates. They also were less likely to go out and leave the nest to scout or raid other ants. So they were effectively just laying eggs and consuming the food brought back by the other ants. Which sure sounds like a queen ant behavior. Yes, but also a very parasitic. Compared to the normal behavior of this species, that individual's not actually helping much to get food. Right. Yeah. It's a moocher. Yeah, because all the rest are making babies, and they make enough babies for the colony to be fine. Right. The queen gets away with it because no one else is making babies yes. in, in a typical ant colony. So here, they are benefiting more than they're actually producing for the colony, it seems. They called it a perfect example of an ant parasite. Interesting. And ant parasites are also not uncommon. There are tons of parasitic ant species that go in and benefit from another colony. Right, they go into a colony, and then they hang out there eating all the free food and not contributing anything of their own. Usually, once again, it's closely related ants. The kidnapper ants, some of their queens will do this when they form new queens, will, during a raid... They will go in, They'll leave one, and then they will. The one of the young queens will go in with the raid, and then stay, kill the queen of that colony, and then take it over to now have this pre-established colony care for her and care for the eggs that she lays that are going to be future kidnapper ants. Right. That just will slowly replace 
this colony. Oh, because ants are sci-fi creatures. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There's a, at least around 400 species of ants that live inside the nests of other ants and depend on those workers without helping to provide for the colony. Most of these examples, though, are long-lasting relationships. You know, mm-hmm. that they've been parasitizing this way and parasite and host this way for millions of years, which likely means it took thousands of years at least for it to have developed, which has made it hard to figure out what the steps are. Right. How for... do you go from not that to that? Exactly. We, we've had debate on how that happens. It's been assumed that that was a fairly complicated situation with many step-by-step adjustments. Sure. You know, that you'd have to baby step your way up to full-blown parasite. But if this is a simple mutation... Yes, this took one generation Mm -hmm. from what we can tell in this. This just happened. And so this could shift our way of thinking of how this could happen. And the answer seems to be that the mutation they isolated was in a group called a supergene, which is a cluster of genes that is inherited together. Gotcha. So they stay... It's like a super cluster of galaxies. Mm -hmm. A, A... associated group. Yes, so these are multiple genes, but they stay together for inheritance, so they don't get split up when you have interbreeding of individuals. Mm -hmm. They stay together as a clump. A mutation in one of these seems to be the culprit here. They found out by looking at the mutated individuals and comparing their genomes to their non-parasitic individuals and found that most of the differences were housed in this supergene. Interesting. Which could mean that mutations like this could cause huge shifts. And as they put it, put evolution into hyperspeed. That it could cause giant leaps in the behavior and physicality, you know, morphology of a species or a group of individuals. Mm -hmm. Much quicker than we thought. And means that the evolution of an ant parasite could have happened much, much quicker. Right. You basically have them here in this colony. Yep. So now all that needs to happen is one leaves with the group and then hangs out in the other ant colony where it was raided Mm -hmm. and is just doing the thing that it would do. Or because it's cloning, that it just over time and genetic drift, that parasitic individual within its own species just drifts to being its different species. Mm -hmm. That... A lot of the cases where we have these closely related parasite hosts that originally they might have been the same species and parasitism arose from their splitting. Right, right. All the moochers went off and became their own population. Yes, exactly. Very interesting. Insights from modern species into uh, the evolutionary history of the species that we're interested in. Absolutely. There was a quote from another researcher, uh, Rabbling, that said they were not convinced or they wanted to at least caution sure because parasitism seems to have evolved in ants 91 times <laughs> so this is one potential avenue yes exactly for one type of parasitic ant that this may not be the only one and they caution that because i do believe the original researchers were quoted as saying this this could be the answer for why it's so common right that this could be like the answer for how it happens whereas in a group like ants yes there could be 30 answers absolutely very cool. I feel like there's a there's a inspirational lesson to be gained from these ants. If you want to be a queen, be a queen. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> if you want to lay around and just eat. <laughs> if you want to be a moocher, be a, that's a slightly different message than what I was going for. Very awesome news. These were fun newses. This is good news. 
And now that we have finished up the news, we can wrap up and move on to our main discussion, which is sleep. <laughs> so if you thought Chunky Dunk Glossius's... <laughs> Get your pillows ready. <laughs> It's sleep time. If you thought these newses were weird, (laughs) get ready for sleep because it's going to get real weird. So we start many a discussion talking about how weird it is to introduce certain topics. Right. Things that are familiar and need no introduction. Yes. And I'm sure I've said something to this effect on other episodes. But boy, does this feel like the most weird one. Right. You ever heard of sleeping? <laughs> like, have you ever slept? Like, unless I'm, unless a college student is the one listening right now. Right, and it's been so long that they've forgotten. That you might not, like. you might be like, right, <laughs> sleep. Shout out to all of our PhD students <laughs> listening. Good uh, luck. Like, Good luck, and we're so sorry about the way the system is. Yes, I hope you have a nice 24-hour <laughs> study hall, study area, computer lab, whatever it is. Good luck. Sleep is a thing we all do. Yes, sleep is fundamental to our lives. Like, this is just a fact of being a person. They say it's about a third of your time. Yes, 36% of a human life is spent sleeping. But sleep itself is often not defined by what that means. You know, we all know what it means if you say, I'm going to go to sleep. But what's actually happening? What do we actually define that state of sleeping as? Which is very important to do if we're going to study it in other organisms. Right. Because lots of things sleep. Yes. Uh, And you might be thinking to yourself, well, yeah, everything sleeps. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, we're going to we're going to discuss that. It's a big question. Yep. <laughs> it's complicated. So what is sleep? As a behavior, a typical definition of sleep is that it is a state of inactivity with greatly reduced responsiveness. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the key things is that sleep is not just you resting. When you're asleep, you're also harder to rouse. Right. You have actually entered a slightly different state of being. And we call that the arousal rate. That's Hmm. the research we'll use that is that your arousal rate increases while you sleep. It makes me think of sometimes the cat will seem asleep, but the slightest noise and she's up and she's looking and she's like, yep, no, I keyed into that. Mm -hmm. But other times I'll go over and poke her and it does not do anything. Yes. Because she is actually asleep. And then if you keep going, you will watch her wake up. Yes. Because now you have added enough stimulus to break that threshold and arouse the animal. We've all seen that. We've all felt that. Sure. Of like, hey, hey, it's time to get up. Hey, it's time to get up. (laughs) (laughs) Alarm number four. Yep. So when you're asleep, state of inactivity, increased arousal rate. There are other typical features, characteristics of sleep that we look for and use to define it. Mostly based off of our and other mammalian sleep. Sure. Some of these are things that you can just observe and some you'll need equipment for. One is a sleep posture. Most animals that we've observed sleeping, including us, have sleep positions. You know, we don't sleep standing up. That's not one of our postures. Right. And there are some animals that do sleep standing up. Yes, exactly. And they don't sleep laying down Mm -hmm. on the ground. So you will see a sleep posture that is common. You know, so that one's a... 
interesting. Typically. Right. There are unusual ones. Yes. Like, there are stories of people sleeping standing up. I'm, I'm sure people with toddlers right now are like, oh, I've seen my toddler <laughs> sleep upside down. Just bent around <laughs> yeah. a chair. Yeah. But typically, there's a sleep posture. One note that is, you know, a pretty obvious one, but I love the caveat I found in one of the papers, is that they remain inactive, typically with closed eyes. If they have eyelids. Yep. (laughs) I have two pets and one of them does not close his eyes. Yes. And that is also a trend that typically you'll see at closed eyes. There are exceptions to that rule and Mm -hmm. we will talk about that later. I've heard of human exceptions to that rule. Oh yeah. Gandalf, for instance. (laughs) One of the ones that you can't just observe but is definitely one of the cores of sleep study is that brain metabolism and neural activity shifts during sleep. Right. What your brain is doing changes. Yes. There's very identifiable brain states for us humans and many other animals during sleep. Right. I feel like I've seen maybe on a TV show or something where someone's being monitored in their sleep with equipment and you'll have the doctor at some point make a comment like, and there we go, we are officially sleeping. Because they're looking at a monitor. Yes. And they're monitoring brain activity. And so this is just central to sleep studies these days. We will be talking about brain activity throughout this episode because of that. Fantastic. I already put a link to the brains episode (laughs) in the blog post for this. That's episode 121, everybody. Yeah. And then one of the big things that sets it apart from other similar situations is that you can wake from it rapidly, which makes it different from a coma or anesthesia. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. You, you, even if it's harder to rouse mm-hmm. from just resting, you can just get up. Yes. That it is not just being unconscious. Right. Like if you just get hit by something in the head really hard yes. and fall over, that's not sleep. Listen, I I know this because I've played Pokemon, and in Pokemon, (laughs) you can be put to sleep, but that's different from fainting. Yes. (laughs) Those are two different states. Exactly. So this is not just being knocked out. You are asleep. It is unique. This also makes it different from hibernation. Right. Which you'll often hear equated, especially in our day-to-day life, of like... Right. It's a long sleep. Yeah. I'm going to go hibernate. Right. And indeed, I think that at least one of the requests for this episode was a request for sleep and hibernation. Mm -hmm. And originally, I had planned on having a section for hibernation. Yeah, make them put them both in the same episode. But then I realized that those they really don't go together. Yeah. So much so, in fact, that many animals who hibernate. So when you're in hibernation, you go into a suspended animation is often the term that will be used. A torpor. A torpor, where your metabolism just bottoms out. Right. Your body actually just kind of shuts down. 5% of normal is a number that I've seen thrown around. Like, just, you're almost not alive. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You're just barely there, and that's to save energy. Typically during harsh times, this is often, you know, seasonal winter, Mm -hmm. when things are not good. Go turn off and turn back on when things are good again. Yes. Like Minecraft. Mm Mm-hmm. You'll also have animals that do it for, like, harsh times when there's less food. Not seasonally, but... For whatever reason, this situation has not arisen, so I will now shut down for a little bit. Right. Reptiles Mm -hmm. often will do that. In in them, it's often called brumation, but it's the same sort of thing. A lot of species that hibernate have to bring their metabolism back up to sleep periodically throughout the hibernation. Right. So they still need sleep even during this incredibly low activity time. They have to actually turn back on a little bit to go to sleep. So that they can then go back to hibernating. Periodic arousal 
to be able to sleep and then go back into hibernation. That's so weird. So sleep is so distinct from hibernation that you have to turn hibernation off to do it because you still need it. Right, which also is a, a hint toward how important sleep is. Yes. That you need sleep for hibernation. Yes. That's weird. So that's a different episode. Yes. Put put in your request now for Absolutely. hibernation. Absolutely. We will definitely talk about hibernation. <laughs> but sleep is its own beast. Now, there are so many parts of sleep. It's much more complicated than you first think. You're like, yeah, no, no, you get start, you go to sleep. Well, part of the reason that is an assumption is because sleep typically follows a circadian rhythm. Right, which is a term we've mentioned before and is probably familiar to a lot of our listeners. And often is used kind of simultaneously or in place of sleep cycle, mm-hmm. but is not actually the sleep cycle. It is what most sleep cycles we tend to think of follow is the circadian rhythm. Circadian rhythms typically are following a roughly 24-hour pattern that dictates biological activities for the organism. Right. The one we tend to think of is light-dark cycle. Right. We humans typically wake up when it gets light and go to sleep when it gets dark. Yes. This is true of so many organisms. Basically, all organisms that we study, like that we found, have some form of circadian rhythm. Right. And it's not just sleep. It can be other physiological yes. things. It can, your body is actually doing different things at different times of the day. Yes. That you know, our brain shifts when dark sets in mm-hmm. and starts biochemically behaving differently. And this is the kind of thing we see this in animals. Mm-hmm. We see it in plants. We see it all across organisms. And the circadian clock has multiple parts. One is whatever the cycle is, you know, light, dark is the most obvious, both because day and night have differing amounts of light and a shift in temperature Mm -hmm. because the sun is out and now it is now it is down. So you have warm, cool, light, dark, lots of things to sync up with. Organisms have ways of detecting those things. So feeling the shift, being able to be triggered into a new set of behaviors or, or metabolisms. But many organisms also have an internal timing system that is synced with that time frame, but separate from it. So that if there's a sudden shift in the temperature, they don't go, oh, it's cold. That means it's night. Right. This is what typically circadian clock is talking about, is this biological system that basically means you maintain your circadian rhythm without having to just rely on the stimulus. Because if you're... You can be deep in a cave. Yes. And you're still going to respond in certain ways to the shifting of the day. This is what causes things like jet lag, is that you've shifted where you are on the planet. The day-night cycle now is not happening at the same time that you think it should be. Right. Because your internal circadian clock is still trying to keep you on the schedule. Right, you're still on West Coast time. You're still on West Coast time. Literally, your body is still functioning right. on that 24-hour cycle. Now the 24-hour has shifted, and your circadian clock will get reset over time. It will adapt. And that's where the sensing that input is important. If you took a trip from the West Coast to the East Coast, but immediately went into a cave, mm-hmm. you, you might... That actually is a fascinating question. Oh, yeah. I assume you wouldn't have jet lag or adjust at all. Yeah, you would just be sleeping offset from what's actually happening outside. Yes. And this is why, like, if you turn your lamp on in the middle of the night, your body doesn't go, well, time to get up because it's bright. Right. No, your circadian clock maintains your systems. This is strongly connected to sleep. Mm -hmm. 
This is often what will ca- cause sleep-like behaviors in non-animals like plants. You'll hear talk of plants going to sleep because there are plants that bloom on a circadian rhythm. Right. The, the leaves might fold up at night or the flowers will close up at night and then open again during the day. Yes, we talked about this in news uh, for last episode mm-hmm. with the fossil evidence of the folding leaves being one of the oldest evidences of a sleeping plant is how it was described in the paper <laughs> because that circadian rhythm is very strongly associated with this cycle of rest and activity. And as we continue through our description of what sleep is, with this cycle, this sets up that you know, expected sleep schedule, you know, that we are, are always just chasing after as humans, mm-hmm. that that, you know, regular sleep schedule, that rumored thing. This sleep schedule is also connected to that feeling of why when your sleep gets thrown off, you feel so off. There is a feature of sleep called sleep homeostasis. That is, if you do not get as much sleep as your body wanted you to get, for us humans, typically it's said eight hours mm-hmm. is the you know ideal, but that ranges sure. for you know each individual what their actual body needs. If you don't get that, your body's going to make it up the next time you sleep. It's going to rebound. They call it sleep rebounding. Making up sleep is real. That is a biological feature of sleep. And we see it in tons of organisms. Mm -hmm. That if you mess with them during the night and don't let them get a full night's sleep, they're going to sleep more and more deeply, typically. Mm. Be harder to wake up, be deeper in that sleep state to make up for that lost sleep. Right. So this is another indicator of how important sleep is and another way to determine whether the activity you're seeing in an organism is sleep is you poke them. While they're doing it. Right. And then you wait till the next time and do they do it more? <laughs> I think we've all run that experiment. Oh, yeah. Pets and siblings and parents and just poke it and see how many pokes does it take yep. so <laughs> to it, rouse this organism from its sleep. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so like that feeling of like, I'm going to go make up sleep. Right? I slept a bunch because I haven't been sleeping. Mm-hmm. That's real. And we'll see that it syncs up with things like activity. So if you're more active during the day, you will also potentially have to rebound with more sleep. Sure. So sleep rebound or sleep homeostasis, another key feature of identifying true sleep. Right. Sleep seeks a balance. Exactly. This is also incredibly notable in the fact that lack of sleep not only requires more sleep to make up, but has health risks. Oh, yeah. Like lack of sleep can be damaging there was one of the studies listed that the, at least at that point, record amount for a human going without sleep was 264 hours, 11 days, 11 and day, 24 right. minutes. 11 days was the number that I had yep. in my head. It was a 17-year-old student, and during that time, they suffered serious cognitive and behavioral changes. Uh, they said they had problems with concentration, short-term memory, paranoia, and hallucinations. Mm-hmm. And in other animals, it has been noted that in rodents and flies, lack of sleep can be fatal. Mm. Well, and I think that we can all, like, I have personally experienced what happens to me if I didn't get enough sleep. Yes. Like, I very recently, I think I mentioned this on one of our, maybe one of our live streams, I become bad at numbers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I was trying to do mental math one day that I had done the day before perfectly fine. I was like, why can't I add numbers today? Oh, because I didn't sleep. Yeah. Also, this is a very timely part of the year to have this conversation because we just experienced daylight savings time here in uh, most of the United States. 
And we're in the spring part of that, which is the bad part yes. where you lose sleep. <laughs> and I have heard it cited, although I don't actually have a reference for this, that there are certain problems that show up around this time every year because everybody lost sleep. Yeah, everyone's a little bit off their game. So, so that, Supposedly there's more car accidents, yes. things like that. That is a real thing with sleep. You know, it, it's not just suggestion by your parents of like... Right, we don't know, just do it for fun. Get more sleep because th- that makes everything... But it. It literally does. Sleep makes you... Uh, lack of sleep lack makes of sleep. you less emotionally stable. It makes it harder to do cognitive tasks. And this is true for us and other organisms. Yes. So sleep is a imperative to just fully functioning. So now that we have an idea of what sleep is, the task to studying sleep in life is being able to identify it in organisms. In us, it's easy because we're the ones that we started studying it in. Right. And many of our criteria are definitely biased based off of that. We're looking for sleep that is similar to or has analogs to our own, which I'm sure there's deeper conversation to be had about. But typically, to identify sleep, you either have the behavioral criteria of those things we are listing, sleep postures, closed eyes, regulated breathing is often one of those, raised uh, arousal thresholds. Those things that you can just observe. And then on the other side is electrophysical features. These are more difficult to observe because you need to put them in a lab. You need to put those little sensors on their heads and whatever. There are basically three ways to measure these kinds of features. Brain waves, which will use an electroencephalogram, an EEG, which is what we'll be talking mostly about. This is just quintessential sleep brain studies. This is used just all over the place. You can also study muscular activity because muscle tone changes. You know, we lose muscle tone when we sleep. We go limp and we're not using those muscles. You can measure that with an electromyogram, an EMG, or eye movement, which we'll talk quite a bit about. I I expect us to. Yep. I also put eyes. Yes. That's the link to the eyes episode (laughs) in the blog post. That's episode 68. (laughs) I knew it was going to come up. This you can measure with an electrooculogram, an EOG. These are measuring the way the body shifts. Mm-hmm. You know, there's also measuring shifts in metabolism and things like that, but these are the three typical ones you'll hear about. But EEG is at the heart of modern sleep studies. Right. That's the one I've heard of. Yes. When we say EEG, we are referring to brain scans and looking at how the signals in the brain are shifting. Brain waves. This is actual brainwaves. Yes. So when we talk about brainwaves, we are talking about what is the frequency, what is the amplitude, how fast are the brainwaves, and how big are the brainwaves. And there are certain types of waves we see at different parts of sleep. Yes. And this is all just our terminology for measuring neurological activity in the brain. Precisely. This is a great tool. It is limited in the fact that it's hard to use on animals in the field. Yes. Because you need to hook up brain measurement equipment to them. And it's hard on small organisms. Yep. I was wondering, like yes. things like flies. Mm-hmm. We can get measurements from them. There are ways to do a body electrical fields, you know, okay. and measure just their overall electrical field from their body and still get shifts in the neural net. But you're not going to be able to put little diodes on a fly's head. Because that's not where their brain really is. Right. Also, that's, it's very hard to make diodes that small. Yep. I assume. But with this, we have been able to distinguish that 
in mammals, our brains have three distinct states in regards to being awake and sleep. Our waking state has its own brain measurements, mm-hmm. which is varied and complicated because we're doing stuff. Right. That's a different episode. Being awake is a different yes. episode. Yes, no, that is its own thing. <laughs> and then in sleep, we identify two distinct states. The non-rapid eye movement section of sleep, which is distinguished by slow waves, and it's often called slow wave sleep as well. And then the rapid eye movement section of sleep. REM sleep. REM sleep. REM sleep you'll hear all the time in regards to sleep. We're going to be discussing it throughout this whole episode, which is distinguished by much more brain activity and movements of the eyes. Mm. And so EEGs have allowed us to distinguish the aspects of not only when something is asleep, but what part of sleep they're in. Yeah. Now, these two states are huge parts of our understandings of when something's sleeping, but also trying to understand what sleep is. So non-rapid eye movement and REM sleep are just throughout sleep dialogue. And there are some distinguishing features between being awake and these two sets of sleep that we see. When you're awake... EEGs show low amplitude, high frequency waves, so small and fast, and a hippocampal theta rhythm during behaviors. I love my hippocampal theta rhythm. Right. I rely on that all day long. (laughs) Your muscle tone is present and high because you're using them. Mm -hmm. And eye movement is normal. You know, you're moving your eyes. Looking at stuff. You're looking at stuff. (laughs) When you first go to sleep, you enter non-REM sleep. In non-REM sleep, your brain waves slow. You have much larger brain waves and they are much slower. Slow wave sleep. Your hippocampal theta activity is replaced by a sharp wave and ripples is what it was called. Cool. I don't know what that is, but your rhythms distinctly change. So your brain waves shift as you fall asleep. Brain temperature drops by like half a degree Celsius and your heart rates and breathing become rhythmic. You can tell someone's asleep a lot of time because you go, well, that's that's breathing sleep. Right. Oh, and you can also tell when, like, a little kid is pretending to yeah. be asleep. Yeah. <laughs> it's like your breathing is not regular. Yeah. I nope. can tell you're faking it. That's not how you <laughs> breathe when you're asleep most of the time. Yeah, and, that I, I guess we should put a little disclaimer yeah. here. That little kid might also, like, just have a breathing yes. issue. And, don't go punishing your children for <laughs> yes, not breathing correctly. <laughs> very true. Uh, but also, we'll discuss that in just a moment. And then, as the name suggests, your eyes aren't moving. Sure. Like, your eyes don't move when you first fall asleep. In REM sleep, which is the second stage you enter. The deep sleep, as sometimes I've heard it related to. This is when you enter a deeper part of sleep, kind of. It is very odd. REM sleep, we see that you first fall asleep into non-REM, then you'll enter REM, and then you'll shift between the two. You'll go back into non-REM, and then back into REM, and the amounts of REM increase throughout the night. And in REM sleep, it's weird. Your brain waves are back to being high brain waves like you're awake. So it picks back up. Your breathing and heart rate are variable. They leave that rhythmic state. You have increased awareness of your sensory apparati. Like you can sense things a bit more in REM sleep. Your brain temperature picks back up. Your eye movement increases. This is the rapid eye movement. That Mm -hmm. is the name of REM. That twitching eyes under the eyelids. That is REM sleep. And this is when the most vivid dreaming sequences happen during sleep. REM sleep is super studied because it is so weird. It is often called the paradoxal sleep because you have effectively an asleep body, but an awake brain. Right. That your brain is 
as active, and at some points it can be even more than awake. So it is very, very active during a time when you're sleeping. There are some things that are not like when you're awake. Your muscle tone, it is still reduced or completely gone, so you're still limp, but during REM sleep, it's interrupted by twitches. Mm -hmm. Across the limbs, across the body, it can be any muscle. You also, and this was just a weird quirk, your behavioral responses to heat go away. So you don't pant, you don't shiver. Oh, okay. Yeah. And part of this is that the hypothalamic thermoregulatory system is unresponsive during REM sleep. Hmm. So you don't respond to temperature changes. This is I, I assume this is why you just can wake up sweaty. Right. But you haven't been like shivering or like trying, like... Right. You your, just... Your body's not actually handling mm -mm. that as well as usual. <laughs> yeah. Your behavior responses can't kick in. Non-REM and REM sleep also happen in different parts of the brain. Non-REM is mostly in the forebrain, while REM is in the pons and midbrain. REM sleep is also heavily associated with the brain stem. And we can notice that activations of specific groups of neurons in those sections of the brains can trigger those sleeps. And damage to those neurons can inhibit those sleep. So it is distinct enough that it, your brain is using different parts to achieve both of these. And they respond differently to sleep rebound. That non-REM sleep, if you miss sleep, your non-REM will be deeper. It'll be more intense. The slow wave activity adjusts. And the level depends on how long you were awake for. And so it is a proportional response. And it starts at a higher degree of difference when you first go to sleep and then levels back to a normal wavelength as you sleep. It'll also increase locally in the brain by which part of the brain you were using the most while you were lacking sleep. So your non-REM responds very notably to lacking sleep. REM doesn't, but you'll just do more REM sleep. So they are fundamentally different. They are very distinct. So those are a lot of the key characteristics of sleep that we tend to look for or tend to use to identify sleep. But sleep is hugely variable. There's a huge diversity of ways different organisms sleep. Probably the most obvious and most commonly noted is sleep duration. How long you sleep. Different organisms sleep for differing amounts of times. We tend to sleep about five to ten hours, but you have animals that can sleep for much longer. A lot of smaller animals like bats and rodents can sleep 18 to 20 hours. Almost the whole day mm -hmm. for a short period of activity. Armadillos are famous for being long-slept animals, like 20 to 24 hours. Like, <laughs> they can just sleep whole days. Whilst you'll see things like large animals tend to sleep less. You know, giraffes, I saw giraffes and elephants listed as three to four hours a day. I saw multiple notes of elephants and one specified Asian elephants as two hours. Like, wow, power nap. Yeah, they just don't sleep much. You know, a famous one of those is horses don't sleep very often, like three hours or so. So it's... Different animals just need different amounts of sleep. Right. And they're not lacking sleep. We don't see that those animals that sleep less tend to sleep more deeply. Right. And they're not just tired yeah. all the time. That's just how much sleep they need. Yes. They don't They don't need as much as us, or we need more than them, however you want to look at it. We'll also see differing amounts of non-REM and REM sleep, where some organisms sleep more in one state than the other hmm. compared to another organism. So that is not consistent. That can shift and that can shift in species. It can shift throughout your life, mm -hmm. both sleep duration and amount of REM sleep. We even see differences in the cycling between those two. 
uh, smaller animals cycle more quickly between non-REM and REM sleep, while bigger animals cycle more slowly. I saw one noted eight-minute cycles for a short-tailed shrew and 1.8-hour cycles for an Asiatic elephant, which is close to how long I saw most elephants listed as sleep, like two right. hours. So you've got one cycle. you got one cycle. So it is very different how a lot of organisms are sleeping. And you just you did just make a, a note that this is something that can also change during the lifetime mm-hmm. of an animal, which is also something that we humans can understand very well. Absolutely. That sleep cycles and sleep patterns will change from being a baby to being a young kid to being a teenager to being an adult and so on. Absolutely. It also can be different ecologically that we'll see organisms living in different environments or different parts of the planet or living different lifestyles tend to have different sleep patterns. Animals in more exposed environments tend to sleep less than those that can go into a burrow Mm. because you can be more secure there. It's safer to take a longer sleep. Yep. We see herbivores tend to sleep less, which could be that they are vulnerable to predators. Interesting. While we see carnivores tend to sleep more because they may not need to worry about that as much. The famous uh, like lions and stuff, which will just sleep or at least laze about for almost the whole day. I also found one study that noted that fruit flies slept more the closer they were to the equator. Interesting. Yeah. So there's weird features. Body mass can often, can also shift this. We see that sleep is inversely correlated with body mass. Bigger animals tend to sleep less. Smaller animals tend to sleep more. This is especially true in herbivores, less so in carnivores and omnivores. Hmm. So it is. there's a huge list of dynamics and relationships in what can cause you to sleep more or less. And then you also have groups that sleep weirdly, that they have weird sleep. One that I found that is a surprisingly common feature is one eye open sleep. Yep. There are lots of organisms that sleep with one eye open. Now, we use that as a phrase like, watch your back. Right. This is an idiomatic expression. Yeah. You better sleep with one eye open. But it's real. Yeah. Some animals actually do that. The most famous group for this are marine mammals. Mm-hmm. This, these are the ones that are typically talked about when this comes up. Uh, specifically, your cetaceans, dolphins, whales, pinnipeds, your seals, and sirenians, your manatees and the dugong. These are all mammals who now face the issue of having to sleep whilst out in the water and still needing to breathe. Right. So they can't just go limp. You can't just pass out for three hours. No. (laughs) Because you will drown. Yeah, you can't hold your breath quite that long. (laughs) And there are air-breathing aquatic animals that will just sleep that way, and they just have to wake up a little bit and take breaths. Uh, Crocodilians are noted. They'll just be down, and then you'll see them pop up, take a breath, and go back down. Yep. And again, this is different from things like brumating yeah. animals, because turtles very famously will brumate and just be at the bottom of a lake for like three months or something. Just breathing through their just butt. Just breathing through their butts. That's a different episode. Because it's turtles. <laughs> These animals have evolved a way to sleep with only part of their brain at a time. Yes. It is called unihemispheric non-REM sleep. Because our brains, as we discussed in the brains episode 121, have two hemispheres, a left and a right. Typically, most animals, most mammals, both hemispheres are asleep at the same time. They can shift between one being asleep or the other, and whilst the other is asleep, the opposite half is awake, which allows them to keep swimming to stay where they need to in the water. Sometimes it's just, you know, staying in the same spot so they don't drift off. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's basically actively swimming. And... The opposite eye of whichever half of the brain's awake is open. 
Yes. Because that's the eye that's controlled by that part yep. of the brain. Because brains are weird. Are weird. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a whole other discussion. So they can have active sight to keep eyes out for where they're going, you know, as they swim, and even danger. Yeah. So they are literally half asleep. And so this is a feature of all three of these groups, seemingly convergently. Yeah. Independently evolved in these marine groups. And we see both types of sleep in a lot of them. Manatees have both bi-hemispheric, normal, full brain sleep, and uni-hemispheric. So they can sleep both ways. They tend to sleep with small amounts of REM sleep. So not much of that. Seals have a little more interesting diversity to them. You have the phocid, the earless seals. These are like your fur seal, you know, the, the tube floppy seals. And the otariid seals, the eared seals, your sea lion-ish seals. Mm-hmm. Those sleep in different ways. Interesting. Earless seals retain normal bihemispheric sleep. Same way as terrestrial cousins. There's even one study of elephant seals that seemed to suggest they can sleep while diving because they put motion monitors on them and they dove. And while they were diving, they found that they slowly drifted downwards following a circular trajectory like a falling leaf. They are a leaf on the wind. And during their descent, they wobbled a little bit and there was absence of flipper movement and then some of them impacted the bottom (laughs) (laughs) so just fell asleep on the way down (laughs) and it sure did seem like they did not see that bottom coming so maybe they were unconscious eared seals have both full brain sleep and half brain sleep and engage in them at different times Hmm. they tend to sleep more bihemispherically while on land like a normal land mammal makes sense and then shift to mostly unihemispheric while in the water and while in the water in that half brain sleep their rim sleep drops off a bunch hmm. they also show an interesting split where the opposite eye is awake and active but also the opposite flippers and whiskers whoa so only half their bodies awake wow so they can just kind of you know keep in their spot, and they can only sense with one half of their face. In cetaceans, though, we see the most extreme version of this, that they seem to only sleep unihemispherically. Mm-hmm. They've lost the full brain sleep completely. It has only ever been te- detected for, like, a few seconds. Wow. They also don't have that half-the-body thing. They can fully swim, mm-hmm. so their muscles are fully capable whilst they're doing this. They still switch eyes... But this seems to be the normal sleep for cetaceans, just the entire group. They did know that it is possible bihemispheric sleep could happen because we do see stationary sleep. In cetaceans that have been observed in human care, there have been noted ones that are sleeping at the bottom of the pool or floating. There's also the famous logging that you see in humpbacks and sperm whales where the humpbacks will horizontally just float and the sperm whales will just fer- float vertically. Yep, face up. Yep. Tail down. Yes. And just float like that. So it's possible that they might, are... might be full brain sleep. Yes, but we can't... We haven't been able to measure that. Right. We don't have a tank uh, that we can encourage a sperm whale to position itself vertically in. Yep. So we've not <laughs> been able to confirm what kind of sleep's happening there, or even that they definitely are asleep. Right. Maybe that's just chilling. Yeah. It's <laughs> something totally different. Cetaceans also seem to have lost REM sleep. Huh. It has never been recorded in a cetacean. Wow. So They just got rid of a part of sleep. Yep, and they may be the only mammal to have done this. 
The only other mammal that was noted to potentially lack REM sleep were monotremes. Oh, I was, I was, I was like, <laughs> right, what weird group of mammals are you about to mention? Monotremes. Okay, platypuses and echidnas. They, when measured, showed signs of non-REM, but not REM sleep. A few studies noted kind of maybe REM-ish sleep in the echidnas, but only in the brainstem. It was isolated and it was very simplified compared to what we typically think of as REM sleep. Right. So it could be that this is a basal version. Right. A precursor or an offshoot yes. or something. Because as you mentioned, and we, we so far we've almost entirely been talking about mammals. Mm-hmm. This is a mammal sleep feature. Yes. And monotremes and cetaceans are both very weird mammals. Yes, indeed. So it could be that there is a monotreme-esque version of REM sleep going on in cetaceans that we just haven't found yet. They might have a weird version, but super bizarre. It has been questioned why we see reduced REM sleep in all three of these groups. And one of the notes was that it just might not be good for swimming because you have no muscle tone during REM sleep. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't be able to swim. Another did note, and this is getting into what we'll discuss later on in the episode, that maybe it's that whatever REM sleep is for, having half your brain awake does. Right, that that level of activity we see during REM sleep might be accomplished by the awake half of the brain. Precisely. Interesting. We also see this unilateral eye closure in lots of reptiles. Turtles, lizards, crocodilians have all shown this. It's unclear whether they have half the brain asleep. So we don't know for sure that that's same mechanism going on. Right. But one eye is open. Yep. And it will be open more often if potential threats have been noted to be nearby. Interesting. And the eye directing toward the threat will usually be the one open. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's cool. So it is absolutely a threat detection. And it is a very literal take on that expression. Extremely. Of sleeping with one eye open. Yep. Like, yeah. Literally to keep an eye out for danger. Yep. <laughs> There's also numerous birds that have been noted to this, and they are seeming to do the half-brain awake. Interesting. Mallards have been noted to do this. Ducks for the threat awareness, but also frigate birds have been seen doing this on the wing. I was going to say, I've heard that there are birds that will half-sleep while flying. Yes. Especially, I think, migrating birds. Absolutely. I've heard of this. That this, this way you don't have to land, you can just kind of sleep while in the sky. We also see, with a lot of migrating and flying birds, a lack of sleep, that they will have seasonal sleeplessness. And there's a number of situations like that where we see where it is beneficial to turn sleep off Mm -hmm. because you need increased activity for mating season or for flying. This is seen as a number of birds, as well as things like cetaceans. Uh, Killer whales and dolphins will show a huge lack of sleep right after birth. Oh, okay. So like the parents yeah. after giving birth or the young after being born? Both. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Which makes total sense. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. That if you're going to be awake. Well, and and what, uh, you know, uh, for our human <laughs> listeners who have been parents, what an incredible thing to be able to do is just intentionally turn off sleep yep. instead of forcibly losing yep, sleep. Yep, yep. It is inflicted <laughs> upon you. It is natural for them. Yeah, they figured it out. And this is weird, though, because typically we see more sleep in young mammals. And right. then you lessen your sleep down to an adult level. It is thought that maybe it might be that it's just sleeping for long, long periods is not conducive out in the ocean. Right. And it that, might just be dangerous. Yeah. To go to sleep, there's more likelihood that 
you're not going to make it up to the surface in time or whatever. It's also a key part, especially for these animals, for bonding between mother and offspring, mm, which is a true. very, very tight bond, you know, famously important bond among cetaceans. So we see a lot of crazy diversities in sleep. We also, there's a whole bunch of studies in things like cavefish and how losing your eyes and going into a cave affects sleep, which we see that they tend to sleep less, but many of them will keep their circadian rhythm. Huh. Yeah. There was huh. one group that would have a circadian rhythm if you put them in a light-dark situation, but in just dark, they lost it. So they had the ability to sense the circadian stimuli, yeah. but they had lost their internal circadian clock, even though they had lost their eyes. So there's a bunch of weirdness. Huh. This is this is the kind of episode that makes me go back through all of our other episodes and think, how are these ones yep. sleeping? Mm-hmm. Caves, episode 112. Yes. It is every group has the same list of questions to ask, but with potentially different answers for any one of them. Right. And I know that there is also the question for some animals of, do you even sleep at all? Yes. Or do you sleep ever? And that is something we will discuss after the break here, because that is a big question for trying to understand what sleep is, is first, is it an animal feature? Right. And then... Why do we do it, and how might it have evolved? Yes, this is a question that has been kind of underlying <laughs> the whole discussion up until this point, talking about what sleep looks like and who does it. This question of why do we sleep? Yes, why? Why Why do we just turn off? We have this whole extra state. We spend so much of our time doing it. There's so much diversity. What is it even for? Yes. I don't know the answer. It, it's such a hassle. There better be one. <laughs> By the end of this episode, <laughs> I better know the answer. To have, like, we sleep. Well, after the break, we will at least discuss it. (laughs) (laughs) The question of why we sleep has been debated endlessly. It is by far the biggest question about sleep. Why? Why do we have these extended periods of often voluntary inactivity? Why do we have this state of being that is so vulnerable? Why so important? It's so important. And if you don't do it, it's bad. Why is it so critical? Why is it seemingly so ubiquitous to life? Why do we have sleep? You'd think this is the kind of question we'd have an answer to. Oh, yeah. Like, this seems like, well, obvious. We have so many case studies. Right. Surely. Surely we know the answer to it. It's obvious. No. (laughs) There have been multiple thoughts on sleep and its purpose. Many very often pointing to that there's got to be a function to sleep. Some pointing out that there could be many functions to sleep. Even many functions for differing groups. Why we sleep might not be the same reason a bird sleeps. Mm. Or an elephant sleeps or an insect sleep like maybe it's not doing the same thing for every organism and then there is still another potential school of thought that sleep might be a side effect of something else Mm. that there might be something going on it's something the brain's doing or something the body's doing that sleep just kind of happens yeah sleep is a side effect it is happenstance and not actually the point so it brings up the question Does sleep have a function? Should we even be looking for a function? Most say, yeah, probably. There's just too much evidence for sleep being something that evolutionarily 
there's got to be a benefit to. There's got to be a function of for just due to all the costs. <laughs> Sleep is a costly time-wise, but it's also dangerous. Yeah. Like, you are wholly vulnerable while you sleep. And you're going to be sleeping for chunks of your life, depending on what animal you are. You also aren't getting anything done. Yeah. You're not feeding. You're not moving. You're not protecting no. your young or your nest or whatever. You're not passing on your genes. Like, right. <laughs> you're not reproducing. Evolutionarily, it seems like it would be something selected against. Right. And this is a, one, another one. This is one of those episode topics that is very relatable mm-hmm. to us humans because it's such an important part of our lives. I'm sure this is a thought that many of us and our listeners have had, that sleep sometimes feels like a real waste of time. Oh boy, this is just summing well, up that, how I felt most so, of my life. <laughs> so much I could be getting done if I didn't have to pass out for several hours. If we could just be dolphins. <laughs> but without all the other dolphin I behavioral could, features. I could type with one hand. <laughs> just keep writing stuff with oh, one yeah, hand. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this leads us into the question of, okay, so sleep seems like it should have a function just based on how much effort it takes if it doesn't have a function and so therefore okay is sleep just a feature of life or is it a feature of animals or feature of some animals this is harder to answer we see sleep-ish behavior in like plants but we don't have brain waves to measure because there's no brains because there's no brains so like we can't for sure say that that's sleeping right it's certainly it can't be sleep by our definition exactly. of sleep because they do not have like if we're defining sleep by nerves muscles and eyes well yeah then a plant can't sleep yes by that definition which is another topic <laughs> of conversation is is sleep a feature of the brain or is it cellular right like Duh. yeah and and this is again hard to answer we do see things in like plants will show differences in their metabolisms during their circadian rhythm so there's an argument that we do have sleeping plants, but, you know, there's no arousal threshold, so mm-hmm. it's it's hard to pin down. So animals, at least. As far as we have studied, every animal we've done sleep studies on has shown sleep. Okay. Every single one. Okay, interesting. Yes. But uh-huh. there's a lot we haven't tested. Right. We have, we have not gone out no and gotten way. every animal. I found one paper that said around 30 animal phyla have yet to be tested at all. Whew. And even the well-studied phylas are not covered very well. So we have studied a bunch of animals and all of them have shown sleep. But there's so many we haven't looked at. Right. It, this could go either way. We could find that there's whole groups of animal life that don't show sleep. Right. That, that nematodes or something yeah. just don't sleep. But... We do have lots of really solid evidence that it does seem like it's an animal feature, potentially. Both the fact that everyone we've studied has sleep, and we've studied things from mammals mostly, Mm -hmm. but throughout the rest of vertebrates, and including many invertebrates, all show sleep. We've already mentioned a bunch of them. We talked about mammals mostly in our previous examples. Birds, we mentioned. And birds actually have extremely mammal-like sleep. They have non-REM and REM sleep. Interesting. Probably convergently with mammals, mm-hmm. as evidenced by the fact that like ostriches have weird REM sleep. So either they have their own weird one, or they are a more ancestral, you know, basal bird group. It could be that they're showing a ancestral bird REM sleep. Right. So maybe maybe they sleep more like how other dinosaurs exactly. Slept. So it does seem that they have every bit of what we define as sleep. 
just with some slight differences. They did note that the uh, the one eye open seems to be probably ancestral to birds because of how common it is. Oh, interesting. Whilst in the mammals, it's convergent in each group. Which also makes me imagine dinosaurs. Yeah! Just the notion of a T-Rex laying down on the ground with one eye perpetually open. Absolutely. Very cool. Like, it, that could be an archosaur thing for all we know if crocs are doing it as oh, well. Oh, sure, like, sure. And in fact, we do have evidence of sleeping in theropods. There are a couple of thought fossils that have been found that are interpreted as preserved behavior, and they are in a sleep position. Yes. The famous one is Melong. A Chinese dinosaur whose name means sleeping dragon. Sleeping dragon. Or Long is like, Long, in Chinese, Long has kind of the soar thing. Yes, yes. Where we say saurus, like Tyrannosaurus, saurus means lizard, but it kind of now just sort of means reptile yep. slash dinosaur. Same thing with Chinese. The character Long means dragon, but it is used for dinosaurs very often. Yep, yep, yep. So they all end up with this dragon word attached to to the end. Great reptile. <laughs> this dinosaur was a, a small theropod. It was a troodontid, so you know, cousins of your raptors. It was found curled up in a very characteristic bird sleeping position with its legs tucked under it, its arms out to either side folded in, they said, wing position, mm -hmm. and its head tucked under its left arm in between the arm and the body. And this is a very stereotypical bird tucking behavior while they sleep. It is associated with conserving heat and is iconic for birds. And evidently, as we always like to note, was a dinosaur feature first. Right. Dinosaurs <laughs> were doing it before birds did. There are a couple other fossils uh, that note similar positions. Big Mama, the oviraptor that's on the nest, is also in a very brooding, potentially similar situation. Mm -hmm. As well as another Mongolian troodontid, Synornithoides. Also was in a very similar position, but was much more eroded. That same position could be interpreted from these two, but they're not quite as well preserved. They're a little more damaged. And we're not as confident saying that it's sleep position. Uh, but we do have evidence of bird-like sleep in theropods. Very cool. Which makes you wonder how something like T-Rex or the big theropod slept without an arm to tuck their yeah, head under. And like you don't have that big flexible neck. So yeah, what were you doing? Yeah. But confirmation, dinosaurs did sleep. Dinosaur, dinosaurs did sleep. You heard it here first. <laughs> we do see sleep behavior in reptiles, but reptiles and amphibians are much less studied than mm -hmm. birds and mammals. We lack a lot of the EEG research for them. And many studies give very contradictory results. Uh, they noted that even just in crocodilians, the same species of caiman was studied to find evidence of potential low voltage brainwaves indicating non-REM sleep. And absence of it. Hmm. Another study reported eye movements in a crocodilian, while others did not. And one study on alligators did not note sleep behavior. Hmm. So, like, it is all over the place. So it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Many other reptiles are also extremely variable in the results from research. There have been a number of studies on lizards, and some don't detect any evidence of... REM sleep or anything like that, while things in like iguanas and tegus and bearded dragons have shown some REM-ish that seems to be potentially maybe the reptile equivalent to REM sleep, whilst others have found no signs of anything like that. So reptiles are kind of all over the place as to how similar their sleep is, but we do see signs of sleep mostly. Amphibians, there's even less information. Sure. They definitely show periods of inactivity, quinescence, with 
heightened arousal threshold, so that that's good for sleep. EEG studies have loaded low voltage waves and stuff like that, so they may have non-REM sleep, but there's not really any evidence for REM sleep. So that might have been a before amniote right. feature that REM came in after egg uh, hard-shelled eggs. Right. It might be that REM is a mammal and bird thing, and then reptiles have sort of REM, mm-hmm. but pre- prior to that, amphibians are just no REM at all. Yes. Fish get real weird. Yeah, of course they do. <laughs> of course they do. And they noted that this is the most species-rich group of vertebrates and probably the least studied right. for sleep. It's also the most phylogenetically diverse group of vertebrates. Yep. Very few have been studied with EEGs because it's tricky. Yes. Uh, there have been some that show distinct EEG patterns, whilst others showed no patterns. Mm. Which means that most of our obs- observations with fish is just anecdotal. Right. Watching them. Seems to be sleeping. Uh, they noted things like there was instance of certain hogfish and wrasse that when lifted from the water by handlers, they were <laughs> able to be lifted. So that sure does seem like a sleeping fish because you're not freaking out. Right. So. Or maybe just a sick fish. Or maybe a sick fish. <laughs> I've noted times with the bamboo sharks we had at the aquarium where one of them went completely stiff like rigor mortis hmm. to where you could just move it around. And I was like. Is this a dead shark? Did you die? Do I? Do I? Mr. Am I holding a dead shark right Mr. now? Mr. Fish. Yep. Did you die? And I was like, had the radio, and the shark went. Ba-doom. Right. Oh, okay. All right. Maybe uh, it was sleeping. Were you sleeping? Were you just <laughs> grumpy and just going, nope, I don't want you to do this. I don't know. They note that fish cannot close their eyes. Sure. So we lose a lot of our easily from a distance. Like, ah, that's a sleeping fish. Yep. I have that with my pet snake. Whereas sometimes he seems like he's probably sleeping, but he's looking at me yep they also note that there's lots of things that keep going even when a a fish is inactive that makes it hard like there's a lot of fish that keep moving their fins Mm -hmm. when they're stationary and resting to keep themselves in position or to even fan themselves or like their eggs or something right which makes it hard to know that for sure that is sleeping there are some that it has been noted very well zebra fish have been noted very well even with having sleep rebound and needing more sleep after being restless. Interesting. So they are often studied for sleep stuff. Uh, they're a common lab animal. Yes. Uh, they've even noticed that uh, uh, certain chemicals that induce sleep in humans induce sleep in zebrafish. So oh, interesting. It, they seem to have a comparable kind of sleep. You also have a bunch of complications with sharks and rays. Yep. You do have the buccal pump breathing ones, which can pump water with their mouth and take long periods of rest on the sand. And some of them can even close their eyes. They don't have eyelids, but they can just kind of, kind of push. S- squinch. Yeah, they just they squish <laughs> they just the, the flesh over c- it. Compress that part of their face. It's so weird. <laughs> like, it's those technically aren't eyelids because those haven't evolved yet. <laughs> right. But you're just making eyelids out of the top and bottom of your face, which is kind of what eyelids are. Sure. <laughs> and there's tons of evidence of sleeping with them, with nurse sharks and uh, other sharks showing lower metabolism during this time. Okay. Showing increased arousal threshold. So sleep seems solid in them. Then you get to the other sharks, right. the ram ventilation sleep Which breathers. have to move in order to breathe. They have to swim to push water through the mouth, out the gills, so they can't stop swimming. So there are no periods of inactivity. Right, because they can't. And this makes it really hard to figure out, do you actually sleep at all? Right. You never stop moving. You never close your eyes. Mm-hmm. Do you sleep? There's mixed evidence. Sand tiger sharks will often be seen majority of their time doing what's called milling, which is just kind of 
aimlessly swimming. Loitering. Loitering. <laughs> that they'll just swim around a reef, around a habitat, and not be doing much. And right. it's often been thought that maybe this is kind of like sleepwalking, sleep swimming, mm. that you're on autopilot. Enough of your brain is on for your lateral line to make sure you don't knock into stuff and to keep you in this one area, but you're not responding to much. Right. You're not hunting. You're not socially interacting with other sharks. Absolutely. Like that. I've definitely seen evidences of them getting surprised during that, of something being in front of them they weren't expecting that wasn't quite enough to trigger their lateral line and getting kind of shocked by it. So they could be sleeping during that, but there's no actual solid evidence for it. Some hammerhead species have been noted to also have long periods of lowered responsiveness where they will still swim and like just circle around a seamount or something and ignore prey fish. Mm -hmm. They don't eat during that time and they will not be triggered by prey items that come nearby. So that could be it. But then like a study on a young great white shark attached a monitor for temperature, location, and depth and found no circadian changes whatsoever. Interesting. So like there what there didn't seem to be any significant shifts in its movement or behavior. So that we don't know. This might be a group that had to evolve away from sleep or something right. because of the way they breathe. And, and is this a case where you lost yeah. sleep? Was sleep present ancestrally and it went away? We also have looked at invertebrates and see tons of invertebrates, like insects, tons of arthropods. We see roundworms. We see mollusks. So like we see tons of different invertebrates showing sleep-ish behavior. Many of them with sleep rebound, you know, homeostasis needing to catch up on their sleep. Two of the cutest examples, well, I mean, one's not cute to most people, but it's just cute to me that it includes them. Cockroaches and bees are well known for having circadian rhythms. And if you dis if you disturb a cockroach during the day while they're sleeping, they'll have to sleep more the next night. Aww. Yeah. And bees are well known for this. There's even brain studies or neuronet studies showing that there is a shift in their, their neuron activity. Yeah, and I've seen images of bees in a what what is referred to as a sleeping posture. Yes, where they'll settle on something and they pull their legs mm -hmm. in, and their heads will droop down. Yep, uh, there will be one of those in the blog post. Yeah, you see a lack of antenna movement mm. during that time, and you'll see a shift with uh, more antenna movement if they lack sleep. And lack of sleep has also been noted to make them worse at doing the dance <gasps> for honeybees, telling other bees where the the pollen is Whoa. or the nectar is. So they also suffer cognitively. Once again, a lack of sleep making you a worse communicator. Yes. Relatable. Yes. It's the bee's equivalent of not being able to form words properly because you didn't get enough sleep. Yep. We've even recently this year in 2023 discovered REM sleep in jumping spiders. Oh, cool. So one of the other things that's tough with arthropods is they have eyes, but we can't see them move. Right. So if they do have rapid eye movement, we don't know. Right, because their eyes don't work that way. Because their eyes are solid lenses on the outside. <laughs> yes. But jumping spiders do have movable eyes. They can't move the lens, but they can move the tube inside. Right. To... Kind, kind of like moving an eye on a stalk. Yes. Except that the stalk isn't outside the body. Yeah, well, and it's, it's if anyone's ever seen those arrow windows that are in castles where it's widened on the inside but skinny on the outside mm -hmm. so that they can't shoot in but you can get a wide view out yes that's what jumping spider eyes are doing they're moving the tube inside the head to change the angle of view outside the lens right right it's like the blasters on the millennium falcon yeah <laughs> <laughs>
Now we still can't observe this in adult jumping spiders, but spiderlings are transparent. <gasps> yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> now they had already noted sleep postures for jumping spiders where they will hang from a thread by their abdomen and even noted leg twitches during <gasps> parts of the sleep. So they were like, oh, that, sh that seems remy. That seems very rem. Ooh. And sure enough, in the spiderlings, rapid eye movements take place. That's cool. So spiderlings are baby spiders. Baby baby spiders. Slings, and they have, as they're called in the business. Yes, yes. And they have transparent exoskeletons mm -hmm. when they're first, first born. So you can see what's happening inside the, the not the, I was going to say the skull, yes. which isn't it. Inside <laughs> the head where the tube part of the eye is moving. So like, not only do we have sleep in arthropods, but like we have relatable homeostasis and REM sleep. Interesting. So, blah. Also, what I'm learning through this discussion is that sleep makes animals cuter. Right? It's adorable. That is very cute. Sleeping is a cute thing to do. We've also noticed noted REM sleep in cuttlefish, I think also in octopus, mm. uh, where they have rapid eye movements, arm twitches, and chromatophore activity, <gasps> causing them to twitch colors. That's right. This That was a study like last year or something. Where it, the study talked about them dreaming uh, in quotes, mm -hmm. uh, but their colors would change while they were sleeping. Oh, that's great. Yep. We've even noted sleep in jellyfish, potentially. I was wondering. Yes. I was wondering about jellyfish. Upside down jellyfish, my favorite jellyfish. They sit on the top of their bells and then their tentacles underneath look like algae, look like seaweed. Yeah. And they'll sit there and I think they do photosynthesize. So they'll, you'll have like a mat of algae that's actually just a bunch of upside down jellyfish. And if you don't pay attention, you won't notice their little bells just barely pumping to keep them down on the, mm -hmm. the sea floor. And if you disturb them, they'll flip and swim away. <laughs> and I love them because they're adorable. But also the first time I encountered them, we were at the Bahamas and we were walking and my dad was walking and stepped next to a piece of algae and it was an upside down jellyfish and it flipped on top of his foot, stung him and then swam away. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like... Ow! And I was like, cool! What was that? What just happened? Why was there suddenly a jellyfish and now there's that, no plants? That plant came alive. Ah! I, well. <laughs> <laughs> we have noticed in the neural rings of these jellyfish, so they have a neural net. They don't have a brain. Right. But they have neurons that are in a nervous system-esque thing. It is in a ring around their circumference. Mm -hmm. And when active... We can see contractions of this neural net, which stimulates the contractions of the bell and the body, which moves them and pumps food into their tentacles. The typical jellyfish folding umbrella movement right. is that, that pumping. We will also notice that there is lack of this pulsing behavior and their sensitivity to stimuli dips at night. Mm. And when disturbed during the night they show more inactivity the next day. Oh, so the sleep rebound. So they seem like they both... Like they got tired yes. the next day. Interesting. So it seems like sleep is even possible without a brain. Yeah. So it's hard to say that it is an animal feature, but boy, do a lot of animals do it. Right. And animals you wouldn't expect to have very, quote unquote, advanced sleep. Like right, right. Human-ish sleep have it well and that what that really makes it seem like is that what we think of as sleep is a very derived complex mm -hmm. version of something that is very common among animals yes. of just having time having downtime having time where the body just kind of powers down for a bit and in us 
complex, weird mammals, we've taken it to this extreme where we've got REM and non-REM and all this other stuff, but that this might just be a version of a thing that is just all across the animal kingdom. Absolutely. And part of the reason, potentially, that it's so widespread, it might be due to also how common circadian rhythms are. Mm -hmm. That all life on this planet, minus a couple of very extreme environments, are subject to circadian patterns. Right. We all experience the sun and the moon. That those things, as we talked about in the moon episode, it affects the planet. Yes. The moon, 138. The sun even more so. Uh, we haven't done an episode about the sun. Oh, but soon. <laughs> we did do an episode about photosynthesis. Yes. Uh, that was 145. So the, that circadian pattern is just universal to life on our planet, which is why most life shows some sort of circadian clock. And this may have been part of the pressure to have periods of inactivity. Right. And maybe sleep evolved for some reason, and then it became a convenient time To handle this other stuff. That's what this idea is kind of saying. That if we have that circadian cycle, what we also have is now different periods to specialize into. Right. Diurnal, nocturnal being the two big ones. You also have crepuscular, which is at the edges. Sure. And so you can now specialize and utilize the time of day that you are best at. Right. And it makes total sense to have a time of day that you're at. Like if you're diurnal, that's when the food is out. Mm -hmm. That's when you can see. It is just the time that makes the most sense to be active. And when it's not daytime, it makes total sense to just not move very much to conserve energy. Yes. It's, they've compared specializing to a time, like specializing to an environment. Mm -hmm. You know, you can be good at trees and you can be good at during the day. But not only does it make more sense to just not be as active during the time that you haven't specialized for, it might be dangerous to be active. Right. That's when other things are around or when you can't see very well or whatever. And then if you already have that, all right, well, it's safer for me to just not move. Maybe that becomes the time where it becomes beneficial to go, oh, great, this thing I've been meaning to get done, this yes. this body function that needs to happen, let's just do that here. Precisely. Absolutely. So that better to be inactive, save your energy when you're not going to be able to be good at hunting or getting food. Mm-hmm. Keep safe. Avoid the dangers. And if you're going to be inactive, that's the most efficient time to do biological things that might take a bit more energy that would have been fighting for your energy while you're awake. This could be the selective pressure to having a sleep-wake cycle. Mm -hmm. Now we have to ask, okay, but what are those important things I've been mentioning over and over? What is sleep doing? What is it doing? Oh! uh, So the (laughs) listeners can't see that Will is scratching the back of his head in that awkward way that cartoon characters do when they don't have an answer to this question. There are lots of things that might be the benefits of sleep, but... A lot happens while you sleep, and it's hard to pin down for sure which of them are connected to sleep, which of them could be the cause for sleep. And once again, we can't say that this is true across the board. So most of the rest of this will be focusing on us humans. Sure. Because that's the most studied example of sleepers. And this question also immediately pertains to non-REM versus REM sleep, because different things have to be happening because your body is doing different things. Non-REM sleep is... The majority of sleep, you know, that that's that's just sleep, basic sleep. When you first fall asleep, that's what you're in. So this is just, you know, kind of default sleep. And there have been many explanations for what this just basic sleep could be for. A lot of them pertain to that there's probably some form of just basic maintenance going on. Mm-hmm. You know, protein synthesis. 
does seem to be increased during this time okay. in the brains, especially so that it could just be that we're repairing and regrowing and replacing bits and pieces of our neurons. New neurons are generated in adult animals during sleep a bit more efficiently, it seems. So there's very likely just some basic repair aspect to it. A lot of people have suggested that it could be go back to that energy conservation with that circadian rhythm mentality that you're not good at night, so don't waste energy. Turn off. You know, kind of like the hibernation. So it might be a similar reason as hibernation in this aspect. There's also conserving your body heat. You know, if, if you're not good at dealing with the cold temperatures of night, go to sleep and stop wasting your energy by having your metabolism up. It was also noted that some of the trends we saw in things like herbivores and carnivores could also pertain to their energy dynamic in their lifestyle, that many herbivores need to be awake longer to get enough nutrition right? because grazing is not efficient, so they can't sleep as much. Right, like elephants mm-hmm. like, who need to eat all the time to get enough food. So there could be an energy connection there, and vice versa. Carnivores are eating much more energy-efficient food because meat is just the best way to make more animals to eat animal. <laughs> So they can be a bit more prone to sleep without losing enough time to hunt. But also, if you are conserving energy whilst riding that energy high of having gotten a kill, it prolongs the time you'll have to hunt again. Right. You don't have to hunt as soon if you're not running around and wasting all that energy. And again, something we see in reptiles who, like crocs or snakes, Mm -hmm. will get a nice big meal and then just kind of power down for weeks to months. Yeah. I'm just going to sit on this. Yes. There are some other more surprising things that might be happening. It might be a defense against oxidative stress. Hmm. We talked about this in the deep sea episode when we talked about deep sea gigantism. Uh, Episode 128. That might have been a defense against oxygen building up in the body, reactive oxygen. Sure, sure. We also produce reactive oxygen, our mitochondria does, when we metabolize. And reactive oxygen is just versions of oxygen molecules that are prone to react with other stuff. And when molecules react with each other, if they react with something else that's already a part of something else, they can tear it apart. Right. Or they can get in the way. They can block another Mm -hmm. molecule that needs to get there. They can cause a reaction that interferes Mm -hmm. with the process of something. They're just... Reactive oxygen is just a thousand little atomic wrenches floating around in the works. And if we get a buildup of these oxygens, it can cause damage to... DNA and RNA and proteins, and even cause cell death if it does too much damage. It has often been linked to aging, partially because high metabolism means higher production of reactive oxygen proportionally. So it would explain partially why smaller animals with higher metabolism seem to age quicker, show signs of senescence Mm -hmm. quicker than large animals who are producing it much slower. Sleep may be a way to interrupt the production by slowing your metabolism, and give a chance to dispose of the buildup of reactive oxygen. Interesting. Which would also sync up with why smaller animals sleep more than larger animals. Yeah, yeah. They are producing it faster, and it would build up more quickly in their tiny body. Right. And the big animal is producing it more slowly, and it will build up less quickly. So they don't need as much sleep to get rid of it, while the little animal needs as much sleep as they can to stave off this damaging molecule. Yeah. There's also been notes that the brain's glymphatic system will do brain-wide flushes of metabolites like this and others with cerebral spinal fluid during sleep. So it does seem that there is a waste management aspect. We're cleaning up. Yes, that we're flushing our systems 
while we sleep and getting rid of all of the waste material our metabolism has been producing while we're active during the day. Right. Like clearing the cookies off of your computer every now and then. This would also explain why you need more sleep when you've lacked sleep, because you were awake longer and more right. active, and you built up more waste. Right. So you need longer to clean it up. That it's reacting to the damage you're doing to yourself by just living and being awake. <laughs> you need equivalent amounts of sleep, or you know, matching proportional amounts of sleep, to deal with all that stuff. Interesting. It's also been suggested that it might just be kind of a reset for our neurons. They called it synaptic homeostasis. That, I like this quote just because it sounds like it was a sciencey phrase for a movie. That daily learning leads to a net synaptic potentiation across the brain. That <laughs> as we're using our neurons in our brain, we will build up potentials and patterns in the neurons there. That if left unchecked, as they said, can lead to saturation of the synaptic weight that we can overburden. Right. The nerves in the brain are just too active. Yes. And that they can kind of get stuck in what we've been using them for. This, going into slow wave mode, could kind of be a reset. We go, all right. Everybody calm down. Yep. Yeah. You learned those things, but you're not learning them right now. So let's... <laughs> and now you can start learning again. Right. This is your brain. This is your brain on consciousness. Yes, Exactly. So many potential uses for that non-REM sleep. REM sleep is harder to pin down because mm -hmm. as its other name suggests, it is paradoxical. Right. Well, it, you're doing stuff. The brain is doing stuff. The body yeah. is twitching in things. The eyes are moving. And if we just listed all the reasons it's good to turn the brain off. Yes. So, so why are we turning it back on periodically throughout the night of sleep? And we, mm, we don't really have a solid answer. I found a number of potential ideas, but it is really hard because it seems like uninterrupted non-REM sleep would be by far the most efficient. Right. Especially if the purpose of sleep, the main function of sleep, is that reset, that maintenance, that cleaning out, which makes total sense. But very intuitively, that all makes sense. Yes. One of the classic ideas is that it is for memory consolidation. Right. That this is when the memories that you formed during the day get stored get get filed away into your brain that's how i've often seen it described is that like during the day as you're learning stuff and as things are happening you're like gathering up notes mm -hmm. and you have your stack of notes for that day while you're in rim sleep the idea is that now you are going to sort those notes into okay i learned this today that's important information i'm going to file that away to remember for the for at least the next little bit. Right. We're going to move this from short-term memory storage to long-term memory yep. storage. Or, you know, maybe like... Or whatever. Mid-term, you know, that... Right. I need to remember this person's name for the next three days for sure. <laughs> but uh, I don't... It'll go to long-term if they're cool. And then uh, I learned today that that one cab driver was... Re I don't need to remember that. Delete. Right. You know. It's kind of like uh, you get back from your vacation and you have to sort through all your vacation photos. Yes, exactly. And some of them get deleted. Some of them get saved. Some of them you got to share with your friends yeah. or whatever. Why did I take this picture? Ah. Right. That is a very common suggestion because of that activity in the brain. Mm -hmm. I've seen a couple that have referenced it as very much one of the potential that it seems to be connected with memory consolidation or at least learning that retention of learned things seems to be connected or promoted, you know, those sections of the brain during REM sleep. But I've also seen a couple that said that this doesn't have a lot of, you know, substantiated evidence based on the fact that, yes, your cognitive abilities dip if you lack REM sleep, but you don't seem to, like, lose what you learned. Right. It doesn't actually seem to directly 
damage memory. Interesting. You know, it, it or at least impede the retention of memory. So maybe there is something there, but it doesn't seem fully nailed down or agreed upon what nebulous aspect of learning REM sleep connects to, but it is historically very strongly connected. The one that seems to have a bit more support just based on the evidence we have, even if we're not sure exactly what REM is doing during this, is it definitely seems to have a connection to early development. When we are born, we sleep more. Right. And then that length of sleep will go down in our early life until we hit a pretty adult level sleep. Right. Babies sleep a lot and then it changes. Yes. We also sleep more in REM as a baby. Oh, interesting. Babies sleep is mostly REM. Hmm. Adult sleep is minimally. It is mostly non-REM. So we go from lots of sleep with lots of REM sleep to less sleep with mostly non-REM sleep. Right. And this pattern is seen across basically all mammals. You know, minus those examples where we have like cetaceans that... Right, and monotremes yes. that are weird. But basically this seems to be a mammal feature that REM sleep is focused upon early in life. It's even distinguishable between altricial and precocial mammals, the ones that are more helpless when they're born and more active when they're born. Right. This is the difference between, say, baby puppies that are useless and a baby horse that comes out and is ready to walk around. Precisely. In those more helpless babies, we see that the decreases in REM sleep happen shortly after birth. In the precocial ones, it happens in utero. Oh, interesting. It happens before so they're even born. By the time a baby is born, that REM sleep is already on the decline. Yes. Mm. We also note that in the adults of altricial species, those adults show proportionally more REM sleep than adults of precocial species. Interesting. So it does seem to be affected with how much, how intense your early development is and how long it is. It's thought that potentially what's happening is that it is key to brain development. Mm -hmm. That that extra activity is effectively somehow exercising or promoting the de healthy development of the young brain. One of the suggestions I saw was that it might be preventing unused connections from being underdeveloped. That parts of the brain that aren't getting used as much, those parts of the brain might get underdeveloped. They might not get as promoted because you're not exercising that part of your brain, that REM sleep might just be a general exercise for, mm -hmm. nope, we need all these neurons. Don't get rid of these. Don't let these fizzle. Don't let these wither. Keep them all here. You're going to need them when you actually have to start feeding yourself. Interesting. Just running all the systems. Yes. It could also be that for like the motor system and stuff. Yeah. Let's just get everything twitching. Which is what it made me think of when we were talking about REM sleep and the eyes are moving and the muscles, you know, you kind of get these twitches. The image that came to mind is that scene in Iron Man 1 <laughs> before he flies for the first time where he goes, all right, run diagnostic. Yes. And it's just all the different parts of the suit. Each little piece just moves and twitches and shifts to make sure it's working properly. Yeah, it might just be kind of a, let's just make sure all systems are gone. You're not using a bunch of these because you're, you know, clinging to your mother right. and you haven't opened your eyes yet. So you haven't actually used your visual systems yet, but you're going to need them. Right, so we're going to keep them warmed up. Make sure they're working. <laughs> yes. Interesting. That was also one of the suggestions potentially for the version of the monotreme REM sleep is that it was just in the brainstem. So maybe it's just to warm up that brainstem and keep it active and ready, which could be one of its purposes. It's just like 
we don't want this to cool all the way. It's like how you're not supposed to not drive your car for long periods. Right. Because everything can settle. Yes. It's it, we, we want you to be ready to go when you wake up. So we're going to... Which makes very much sense for how we see the shift. It does bring up the question of, okay, then why do we still have REM sleep as adults? Right. My, my brain's done growing. Right. And is it just the same kind of thing? We're just keeping everything active so that when you're ready to wake up, you have it. But then why don't other animals do that? Yeah. Warming that brainstem could be part of it. Just keeping it, keeping things a little tuned up just a bit. I saw one that suggested it might be to reverse the effects of non-REM sleep. Because in non-REM sleep, if you are woken up during that time, you're typically much groggier. Mm. You're you're a bit more fatigued. You're not feeling quite as aware and conscious as quickly. So when you wake up and you don't feel good that you woke up, it may mean that you woke up during non-REM sleep. Yeah. So maybe REM sleep is a way of getting all the benefits of non-REM sleep, but offsetting some of the negatives of it. Well, it's a, and it, it might just be preparing for wakefulness because uh, if you wake up during REM sleep, you're good to go. You're right, much more right. active. You're boom. And you did say that as sleep goes on, our cycle tends to be more and more REM sleep exactly. over time. Ah. So it may just be that we have this process to make you ready to wake up so that you are good to go for any dangers that might be in the world. Right. And we're going to shift slowly more toward that sleep so that when it's about time for you to be done with sleep, you're more likely to be up and at ready to go. Interesting. Yes. Okay. They noted that uh, initial REM sleep periods can last five to 10 minutes, while toward the end, it can be like 25 minutes. Mm. So there's definitely potential answers for what REM sleep is, but it's still, it's hard to nail down. Yeah. And there's so many more complications to it that make it hard to answer. Because one of the other things that happen as you increase that amount of REM sleep, it deepens and... REM sleep is the part of sleep where dreams tend to happen, the most intense dreams. Yes. And they're only going to get more so as you go through sleep, which leads to the question of what is REM sleep for? What are those dreams for? Right. What are dreams about? The idea of REM sleep as a function that has some sort of functioning for cognitive complexity or making sure the brain is all running is a rather satisfying thought because we see it in birds and mammals. Yes. Which both famously have very complex brains. And we do see a correlation between amount of REM sleep and encephalization quotient. Right. How big the brain is compared to the rest of the body. Yep. Bigger brains to body size tend to mean you sleep more REM sleep. So much like a bigger computer or a bigger vehicle or even just a bigger building mm -hmm. needs more maintenance or the more complex it is, it needs more maintenance. It, maybe it's just a function of that. That seems to make a lot of sense. Absolutely. And so dreams fit into that because now we're doing storytelling while we sleep. Right. Which connects very nicely to that complex brain mentality. That the brain's doing stuff. Yes. It's, it's working with things. It's thinking. Is that the equivalent of the muscle twitching? Mm -hmm. Are dreams brain twitches? Now, by no means are we going to even get close to answering what dreams are or what <laughs> they're for, what they mean. This isn't for dream interpretation. Right. That That's a different podcast. I just wanted to blow through real quick some of the potential suggestions that have been made just because of dreams are so weird yes like as we all know anyone who's had a dream and remembered is like that was weird that was weird even a normal dream of like yeah i was at school my principal was my grandfather for some reason that was weird right like 
Even when it's a mundane dream, it's it's just weird. Why something's off? Why what? are we telling these stories to ourselves? There's an old XKCD that is something to the effect of, "All right, I'm going to go lay down and hallucinate vividly for several hours." Yep. Why? Flat answer: We don't know. Yes, we don't know. We don't have a good answer to this. We question. do not have a good answer. But there have been a number of hypotheses thrown out. One of the classic old ones, which is very much based off of Freudian thoughts, which though widely discredited, right, still has been looked at very often for a potential answer for dreams, is that it might be emotional regulation. Mm. That like how it's often said that talking through your emotions can help you process them. Dreams might be our brain's way of doing that. That it might just give you a way to feel feelings mm. in a, you know, not even just controlled environment, but just in a simulated environment. It has been noted that there seems to maybe be a connection between dreams and emotional stability uh they call it an emotional thermostat that it can help potentially for people recovering from traumatic highly emotional events if they are dreaming about those things to then process those feelings interesting i think freud's original idea was that it was for fear extinction that dreams and nightmares were there so that you could experience scary things right like watching a movie and yes. getting the catharsis of that feeling but without having to be in the dangerous situation yes. and you could get over fears or triumph or know that you could survive, which most people don't hold as true because most dreams aren't scary. Right. So that doesn't really hold it. And in fact, many dreams aren't even emotional. So a lot of people question this idea altogether. Yeah. We, plenty of us have just mundane dreams. Doesn't really seem like we're probably processing much. Right. But it is in that line of the idea of the brain working with some stuff that it's picked up. Absolutely. Dreams have also been connected to memory consolidation, just like REM sleep was in general. Yep. Even though many people have found this doesn't seem to really hold water. Right. Since a lack of dreaming doesn't seem to affect the memories. and A lot of our dreams don't seem to actually connect to memories. So right. that idea has been suggested, but not solid support, it sounds like. I saw one suggestion that it might be for selective unlearning, reverse learning of getting rid of info. And deleting stuff, and it might just be the side effects of that happening. It's also being suggested that it might be a way for us to practice real-world events. Mm. You know, to dream up situations and practice, you know, exercise those neural pathways that would deal with that situation. So it might just be a, a random scenario generator and a way for our brain to go, okay, alright, here's how I would handle this, and now I've had a neurological muscle memory a little bit for that situation. Right. I have the neural pathway a little bit for that. Mental exercise. Yeah, that is just mental exercise for random scenarios. But most of those are very much logical proposals for what dreams are. Not fully substantiated hypotheses. Right. And definitely not theories of dreams. A lot of them don't have solid support or or evidence-based support. It is It is... Just a, a neat idea. A neat idea, often very anecdotal. Logically, it makes sense based on certain things, but often will break down with other aspects of dreams. Mm-hmm. Like, many of them don't explain why there's such weird things in dreams. Right. You know, if it's preparing me for situations, why is it preparing me for the ability to fly? Like, Right. Or why is it preparing me for a thing that happened years and years and years ago? Exactly. Like, how, if it is an evolutionary benefit for that stuff, why would it be selected for things that would never benefit me. Right. So lots of situations like that, there's often been a suggestion that dreams might just be a side effect. That there's not really a reason for the story of the dream 
That's just the synapses firing and your brain trying to make sense of it while other stuff's happening. Which is always a, a danger we run into when we think about something like dreams is trying to impose a purpose on it. That if it exists, therefore there must be a reason, there must be a purpose, there must be a function to it. Where that always seemed to me, mm-hmm. as a person who has no expertise in any of this field, yep. Yep. <laughs> that it could it would make total sense that it's just the brain is doing stuff and that is creating thoughts and experience within the brain that then the brain is trying to interpret the way that we know brains will do when yes. they get mixed signals and weird stuff. That we are, we our brain is adapted to seek out patterns and to make sense of the information it's given. Right. That dreams might just be a weird side effect of a thing that is important. Mm-hmm. That the dream itself might not be a big deal. But it is kind of what ha- – it's the sparks that fly when the other things that are important are happening. Which can feel very unsatisfying because so often dreams can feel and be significant. Like yeah, a dream can ruin your mood for the day. Yeah. If you wake up and you're like, hey, I just remembered that time I was betrayed by a loved one. <laughs> or like a dream can – Feel very closely tied to yes. events in your life. I've woken up panicked before. Absolutely. I I remember I thought of a great joke in a dream <laughs> once. <laughs> yes. I don't remember what the joke was, which is a real shame. But I remember I woke up and I went, I need to write that down. That was a great joke. And so many artists have stories of, mm-hmm. this was inspired by a dream. I, I have a drawing as a kid I made. Was a cool monster that showed up in a dream. And I went, I want to draw that. Yeah. So it can feel unsatisfying to break it down to a just mechanical explanation but a recent paper I found gave one of the only hypotheses I came across and that they were saying is one of the only ones based off of solid evidence that does potentially give a mechanical explanation for dreams. They call it the overfitted brain hypothesis. Mm. They note that deep neural nets, which are artificial learning systems, are one of the closest analogs to the human brain we have and are often brain inspired. You know, they're and we design them with our knowledge of how brains work. And studying them, we find many similarities in patterns of learning, in trends in how the thought, quote-unquote, thought process happens. And so they have been used to study brains and learning and cognition. Just, we finally have a thing that we can tweak and poke and prod and not have to worry about ethics. Right. <laughs> of it looks and works kind of like a brain. Exactly. So this is really one of the first things that's given us a good analog for the human brain and the way it thinks. And these neural nets face some consistent issues. One of them, which is pretty much an issue for all of them, is called overfitting. As they work on a set of data or on a task, they can become over-specialized at that. And they will see a trade-off for memorization or generalization for other tasks. Basically, they become too good at this thing that they can't do other things very well anymore mm. because they have they have become too ingrained in this. This is the whole concept for the AI in Halo, rampancy that they talk about in the later game, is that the AI gets so good at thinking that they think themselves to death. They no longer are running their subroutines to maintain the rest of their program. Right. They are just focused. They get stuck. That can happen to these neural nets as they work on a set of data. To combat this, what you do is you use what's called noise injections of you feed them a bunch of random nonsense data that kind of resets their pathways and gets them to be a bit more flexible again Mm -hmm. and be able to handle new tasks again. 
the overfitted brain hypothesis is suggesting that this could be the same issue we're facing. Like we were saying that resetting the neurons in development could have been important for just calming down so they don't go over, get oversaturated. We also might get over-specialized. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing the same thing, especially if I'm an animal surviving every day, I wake up, I graze, I go to sleep. I might not be good at when a scenario changes on me because my neurons, my neural pathways have gotten overfitted for this set of data. Dreams might be that noise injection of Mm. random info, random nonsense, meaningless data just to reset your brain, shake out the cobwebs, and remember that you have these other parts and you have these other pathways and just prepare you for the randomness of life a bit by making you a bit better at generalized preparedness. Interesting. So it could be that what's in the dream is not important. In fact, it's important that it's not important. Right. It's just the process of dreaming. Uh, just here's ran- here's a Mad Lib. Work through that. that that'll shake you out a bit. Mm-hmm. And you'll be good to handle general stuff the next day. Interesting. That's the closest I came across of one that actually seems to have measurable comparisons. Right, right. That seems to really support a a logical explanation for dreams and therefore potentially also REM sleep. But that's one study. Like that is a very new hypothesis. One very recent study. Yes. So we are still utterly baffled. Right. And, and what really has happened here, as, as our listeners may have noticed, is that we started out this episode with the question of what is sleep? And then we moved into why do we sleep? And there's all these unanswered questions and there's all these mysteries. And as we have kind of circled around all these questions, we have finally landed on why there are all these mysteries. And that is because this is secretly a discussion about brains. Yep. And brains are mysterious and weird. They're so bizarre. That's what happened. Yes. We went, it's like, oh, but all of these answers, all avenues point to the brain. And now we're confused. And that's ignoring jellyfish and others that don't seem to have those. That have a kind of brain. And so our explanations for non-REM sleep could still make sense. They're still metabolizing. So clearing that out makes sense. All right. And it would make sense that you don't have REM sleep if you're not having the cognitive complications that we're having sure but yeah it brains and neural nets you know it's we're still confused sometimes of like okay you don't have a brain but you're definitely remembering stuff right how did you do that okay that's weird Mm -hmm. slime molds you don't have a brain but you sure do have a complex way of solving problems that's all chemical based and not neuron based right does that count as memory how do we count that how did you do that and sleep get, touches on all those same sorts of it questions. It does. And it is just a, a very mysterious aspect of our daily life. Yeah. Now I encourage all of our listeners to go back through the other episodes of Common Descent and wonder about the sleep of the things that we discuss. Yep. Right? Did mosasaurs and ichthyosaurs sleep one half of the brain at a time? Yeah. Like modern day marine mammals do? Did large herbivorous dinosaurs also show less sleep? Or is that just a large herbivorous mammal thing? Did big theropods sleep most of the time? Mm-hmm. Did baby dinosaurs show a higher amount of sleep and REM sleep and less as they got bigger? Yeah. Did placoderms sleep? Yep. 
could pterosaurs sleep on the wing like oh, some birds do? yeah. Surely. Surely. Surely they did. That, yeah. Fun. Well, now we all have more stuff to think about. I want paleoart of just sleeping animals. I want, yeah, sleeping and dreaming pterosaurs in the sky, floating around, dreaming of that they have a test that they have to take tomorrow that they didn't study for. Oh, yes. That was one thing I had to mention. We see REM sleeping tons of animals, and they'll do, like, the twitchy limbs. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, your dog twitching its limbs is REM sleep. But we don't know that they're dreaming. Right. We don't know for we sure. We often that... say that. You'll yes. hear people who'll be like, oh, he's dreaming. Yeah, that's because that's what we attribute when our body's doing that. We are in the part of sleep that is strongly connected to dreams. Right. But, but yeah, we don't know that other animals are dreaming. And even if you're like, yeah, but we see the heightened brain waves. Okay, but... That's REM sleep. That's just REM sleep. That's just a right. feature of REM sleep. We don't we don't know that anyone else dreams but us. Right. I wouldn't be surprised that others do, but that's oh. hard to nail down. We don't know that, and we can't ask them. They don't keep dream journals. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we can wrap things up. There's so much. Like, this, this, this is already a long episode. This has been an introduction to sleep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure people are going to have tons of questions, so please send us those. Absolutely. Uh, all the places in the episode description where you can reach out and uh, interact with us and the rest of the community. But for now, we will wrap up our discussion on sleep and start to close out the episode. But before that, we have a patron question. Oh, hey, we do. That's a benefit that our patrons get. Yes. Every episode, we like to answer one of the questions sent to us by our patrons and answer it here on the podcast. And our question today is... This episode's patron question uh, has nothing to do with sleep, although it is about animals that sleep. Oh, hey, there we go. This question is from Tobias, who says, Upon my seventh or eighth re-listen of the dogs episode... Wow. Yes. That's a lot. You must really like that episode. That's episode 94, everybody. It comes highly recommended by Tobias. Yes. And so now you can go and catch up <laughs> yes, on yeah, number of listens. That's the record so far. <laughs> Upon my re-listen to the dogs episode, it dawned on me that dingoes were never mentioned. I know that they are not native to Australia, but what are they? Dogs or wolves or something else even? Will, that was your episode. Yes, it was. Tell us about dingoes. So dingoes are the wild dogs, quote unquote, of Australia that are very famous and extremely iconic for that continent and its history. And I, I, I didn't make it into the dogs episode, I think because I just wrapped dingoes up of like, yeah, and dogs. Like, right. I wasn't going to go through breeds well, and, of dogs. And that was an episode about canids. Exactly. So dogs, dogs really were squeezed over on the end. Yeah, like that's... Someday, perhaps, there will be a whole domesticated dogs episode. Submit your request now for a domesticated oh, dogs episode. Yeah, that... Woof. Dingoes. So that they didn't get specified on because that they are among dogs and done. And I picked this question thinking like this will be a nice kind of, you know, straightforward thing at the end of our super nebulous sleep discussion. And then I looked it up and was like, oh, not straightforward. Mm. Uh, Dingoes, there is a lot of debate as to how to define them. They are pretty agreed upon to be dog. Right. But there has been some research and findings that indicate they're well, they're not dog dog right so domesticated dog yeah they may or may not fit within that category there's a mitochondrial genome study that found that dingoes fall within domestic dogs sure and this was agreed upon by some others the dingo and and the new guinea singing dog which i'm not i didn't know that was a thing sure they seem to be closely related and have often been considered to just be canis familiaris domestic dog often categorized as feral dogs. 
They were brought to Australia Mm -hmm. and then got out and became wild again. Yeah, so they are no longer domestic now. Right, even though they are the species that is domestic dogs. Yes, so they have descended from domesticated dogs is the classic interpretation. Sure. And how I've typically seen them considered and why I just was like, yeah, no, dog, even wild dog, but still dog. But there is some evidence that seems to suggest they might not actually come from domestic dogs. One DNA sequencing study found that they are not full dog, but somewhere between wolf and dog. So close to domesticated dog, maybe on the way to... A close relative of domesticated dogs. Yeah, but maybe not actually domesticated or what we would consider today's lineage of dogs. Looking it up, I found that they were often listed as basal dogs. Right, an early branch. Yes. So they, you know, they were not among the the breeds of dogs that we consider when we think of our pet dog today. Mm-hmm. They were a branch off as that lineage continued right. to modern dogs. So descended from the same ancestors as domestic dogs. Yes. But not technically domestic dogs themselves. Yeah, the domestication status is murky, especially even today. Because their behavior shows that they are very friendly with people. Mm -hmm. But they have not been domesticated by the aboriginal people there, even though there's a long historical association where they will live and work together, but that there's not a reliance. Right. Dingoes are perfectly comfortable being wild, and we're not sure which group of people brought them over to Australia. Right. So we don't actually know what their history of relationship with humans is. And fossil evidence... The earliest known dingo fossils from Western Australia date back 3,450 years ago. And genetics indicate that likely they reached Australia around 8,000 years ago. But the morphology of those fossils has not changed. They're basically dingoes. It's dingoes, which indicates and suggests a lack of artificial selection, a lack of breeding by humans. We were not selecting for things which would have shown changes in that much time. So it seems that they are still dog or maybe just very close right they're either feral domesticated dogs or very close cousins of true domesticated dogs yep 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 very interesting yes i'm glad that tobias asked this question it's a much more complicated question that i'm sure will continue to be debated yes and perhaps uh we will get to talk about more in the future yeah submit your request now for a dingo yeah for the dingo episode that we eventually do (laughs) very very cool thank you tobias for that question. In fact, thanks to everybody on our Patreon and everybody who sends us questions or episode topic requests. This whole episode was because of you. Yeah, so you're to thank for all of that mess of trying to figure <laughs> out what sleep is. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed. If you have questions, if you have comments, if you have further thoughts, check all the links down in the episode description for ways to interact with us. You can sign up for our Patreon. You can follow all our social medias. And there's those links down there for you to support us if you want. Yes. There's also a Discord you can join where lots of fun discussions are had. Yeah. Don't forget that we've got ETS UConn coming up first weekend in April for those of you in the Johnson City area. And also Croc and Snake Month later in the summer. Stay tuned for more of that. Also, I don't know where we're falling in the timeline of recording stuff. But probably a silver screen science. Oh, yeah. Or two coming down the pipe. Keep your ears out for that. We don't have an update. That might just appear someday. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> just just suddenly. All right. And and with that, I think we're good to wrap up. We release episodes every fortnight. Uh, this episode was exhausting. Yes. I think we all could use some we can we could uh, all uh, use some sleep rebound. We can all that. use it. We all use a nap. <laughs> Let's all go take a nap and dream about all the weird stuff that we have learned yes, today. Yes, and, and you can wonder why you're dreaming about it. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.